Hi, it's George here from the Unofficial Controller Podcast. Just taking a moment to, first of all, thank you for listening. It means a hell of a lot to us. Secondly, every week we bring you free content, the latest news, the new releases, a feature of note, normally something to do with games or gaming past, be it one of our history of documentaries or an insight into the industry itself or how games have affected us as people. Well, yes, we incorporate you listeners into that. All we ask is that you drop a little comment on our post on social media and you can get featured on the show. Hey, do you know what? You may even win a prize. The only charge for this is zero pounds, zero pence, zero dollars. That's right. No money. But all we ask is that you like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you found this show. And if you're feeling a little bit cheeky, tell a friend, get them to do the same. We have a Discord that's free for you guys to all join in and get involved in. And the community on Instagram and Twitter is alive and thriving. So don't be a lonely gamer. Make yourself known. Thank you. And now it's time to begin this week's entertainment. Take care, guys. Welcome to the Unofficial Controller Podcast, your weekly gaming podcast. Episode 95, it's a big one, guys. Mike Rouse, AAA gaming developer by day, YouTube legend by night. With me, George, as always, joined by Bobby. But this week, as I say, we're honoured to be joined by the man that gave David Beckham a face. Mark Hammond some wheels, PlayStation a home, Muggles magic, and even made us all pop stars. A man who needs no introduction because of the way I've put this script together, I've already dropped his name twice. The mighty, legendary Mike Rouse. Mike, we're humbled. How are you? I'm extremely well, uh, and it's amazing to be here. Well, welcome to New York. Obviously, we probably had to smuggle you over on a speedboat because of the whole lockdown thing, so it's probably not right to get a guest, uh, guest sort of rammed into a small fiberglass compartment on a speedboat, but I'm sure that... Uh, we've made up for it since and and, and i requested extra pillows as well yeah i mean i'm not sure if you got them i hope you the, did the box seemed to be full of fermented cheese um so i brought some with me okay uh, and we can we can uh we can pig out on that while we're having this uh, podcast yeah i'm down that's great i i would argue that's probably not cheese mike and if el buccio finds out that you've you've purloined that from his locker we poof, i don't know uh <laughs> yeah, last time it cost me about three pints of blood. So we're probably, nice. yeah. Let's give new fans and old a rundown of how things are going to go on the show. Obviously, <laughs> coming up, we've got the news. And in there's some Switch XL Pro news. So that's something worth sticking around for, listeners. Then we've got the feature, which is a basically a run-through and in, an interrogation-like uh, interview with Mr. Rouse there. Uh, we'll turn the lamp on and we'll grill you like hot bacon on a, I don't know, like a small cafe on an industrial estate, free cup of tea. <laughs> uh, and then obviously the real deal, the man himself, Stingray, tears up the drive, uh, or fifth of Maine as we're now in New York. And then the show ends when I ask you guys what you're hoping to play for the gaming week, but the show cannot and literally will not begin until Odders, grip tart on that bag of getaway swag and that jar of jelly deals, friend. As I ask Mike and Bobby, 
what have you been playing? Um, guests, rights, I suppose, Mike. What have you been playing this gaming week? I have been playing a ton of stuff. Um, so I have a, a live stream plug coming in uh, every Wednesday where I play uh, an old arcade game. Uh, so we played Batman from the 90s arcade, um, completed it. It was not very good. So mm. I didn't enjoy that one. Um, but then I've been playing uh, Mega Turrican on the Mega Drive, which I picked up. Beautiful. Um, and I've also been playing Hyrule Warriors. I don't know if you guys have had a look at that. It's on the Switch. Uh, Age oh, of man. Calamity. I, I, I bought it. I just don't have it. I mean, I haven't played it, but I, I own it. Oh, so, I mean, I'm a massive Zelda fan. Um, and the gameplay is very um, repetitive, but it's got the storyline in there for the beginning of Breath of the Wild. So uh, I'm geeking out on that. Um, but any any given week, I'm probably playing and completing three or four different games, most of them kind of more vintage or, or retro games, especially on my Sega Mega Drive. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, but uh, you're obviously going for the full PAL set. Uh, yeah, I, I've always been put off by that. I, I, I'd sort of, I don't want to go too deep on this, but my methodology has always been get a mean machines from back in the day, get a copy of Games Master from back in the day and try and pick off the games that reviewed reasonably well. Uh, and then kind of avoid the rest of the library. But you said, no, to hell with that. Give me, mm-hmm. give me everything. <laughs> I did. <laughs> a little bit greedy. I think it's. it's <laughs> I'm. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm at an age now where I want to indulge childhood fantasies. Um, yeah. And um, I. I'm very much. I will buy the games that I loved. Um, mm. But I got to a point with the Mega Drive, and was like, why don't I just buy all of them? Um, you know, at that point, my my wife almost divorced me. Uh, because I told her how much it's probably going to cost and that most of these I won't actually play more than once. Uh, no retro collectors on their first marriage anymore, Mike. So, you know, no. <laughs> welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've I've undertaken it um, and it's it's insane. It's uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, it's got its ups, uh, but there's a lot of lows in there, especially when you're spending £30 on a FIFA 96 98 99 um yeah those those are the lows but the highs are i found a ton of games that i never knew about uh that are just absolutely brilliant and those you know those are the games that i'm playing through that i never got to play as a kid oh wonderful awesome okay bobby what have you been playing sir uh we're continuing sniper elite three authentic we got to the seventh level wow so just two more levels and some online trophies and we're done um and then i played we played for honor a little bit oh i marlon got the season pass season five pass so i said okay let's play it we did about 15 duels and we won all 15 wow nice so i feel really good about that and i've just been playing cyberpunk i just got the all car trophy and i'm just trying to do the four endings and then put this game away i feel like i'm playing it for the whole year i really have are you enjoying it I, I was enjoying it, but I think to getting that money for the car trophy, kind of like, oh, God, made it a little boring. But now that I have just the endings left, I think I'll just enjoy and see see how each story branch, you know, finished. Because apparently they're all different endings. So 
yeah. I want to see what ending, you know, I think is the best. I guess yeah, we'll find know, out this week. Cyberpunk was going to be, was the game that I was going to get me to buy a PlayStation 5. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came out and with everything that's been going on, I've been thinking, hmm, maybe I should go for Stadia uh, and, and have everything um if 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 these consoles aren't able to handle it but it, it kind of put a real dent and a downer on me wanting to buy a playstation 5 for it because i was really looking forward to cyberpunk um but some of the sheen's been taken off for me mm-hmm. i can see that see for me when i first had it it installed into like an external hard drive so the first act was fine but after that i had so many glitches and it was just ridiculous then i realized it installed into the external hard drive instead of the PS5. Mm-hmm. So I just switched it back and I literally had no issues after that. Mm. So, I mean, for me, I guess I got lucky because I know some people can't even, you know, play more than 10 minutes and it shuts down, but yeah. I've enjoyed the experience. It's just time for it to end. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's it. It's just got to go. It's uh, it for me. Welcome soon. Okay. Uh, what about you, George? Well, you know, I'm a very strange, eclectic kind of guy. So I've been playing. Did I mention this last week? I've managed to get hold of a copy of Africa for PS3. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that game, graphically, <laughs> it, it's 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 quite nice. And I like um, some of the sort of, the whole getting in the Jeep, going and taking photos of wildlife is actually quite uh, mildly entertaining. And I'm sure when it came out, it was more of a technical marvel than it is now. There's a lot of sort of stretched and bland textures in between moments of like almost great beauty when the sunset hits and maybe you catch that animal doing this certain thing. It's It's been quite enjoyable. And the little grind to get new cameras, which are all sort of Sony based is, is, is kind of mildly distracting as well. And, and kind of nice. I've been trying to finish little big planet one, but I've like literally got two levels to go and the difficulty level has just spiked. I wanted to uh, just knock off all the little big planets and play Sackboy's adventure on PS5 just to see, because it's a very different game too. So I like to have a look at things through a lens. So like I did play little big planet back in the day. I don't think I ever finished it. So now it's time to get them all done and then do a comparison and, I always threaten, I write all these things down in this book. So one day I threaten to do retrospectives on these gaming series. I probably need to get a life, to be honest with you, gentlemen, but that's <laughs> where it's at. I've um, My PSP love has doubled down. So I've got my shell kit on order to make a black mint um, version one. I've had um, some bits arrive, so I've re-managed to repackage my uh, ceramic white one with a new front face. Beautiful. Um, the difference the screen, just a non-scratch screen makes to the quality of the image is unbelievable. Mm. Uh, played a little bit of a getaway, obviously, with you you coming on. I wanted to... It... <laughs> 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 it, it'll test a man's patience in this day and age, Mike. I tell you that now. Uh, yeah, here we are at the Republic. Yeah, for the for the eighth time. You know, for the eighth time. Uh, yep. But other than that, um, I was amazed as I was driving round. You obviously do the first mission, you go to the second area, and I was just taking it all in. The buses are in the bus lane, and the way everything sort of works, the traffic and. We'll get we'll get to this obviously in the feature, but one thing that startles me is that you didn't have a license for any of it, but unknowingly to you, 
you've actually you had the Fiat Punto in there, you had the Alfa Romeo in there, you had the Iveco truck in there. I don't know if you know, but they're all part of the same manufacturer group. So without knowing it, you probably could have bumped these these um, franchises off quite easily uh, because you'd managed to group all the different sections together, probably without realizing, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, And that's, uh, is that all I've been playing? I've been playing some PSP, obviously, but that's quite boring for you guys. You probably don't want to hear too much about that. Um, Motorstorm Arctic Edge on the PSP is an absolute joy. And, 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 you know, easy to pick up. I wanted to bang some things in to make sure everything was working. So they were easy games to slot in. Um, God of War, again, that looks phenomenal on there. Mm. Little Big Planet looks phenomenal on there as well. Um, mm. Yeah, such a wonderful console. I've decided next month I'm going to double down and pick up UMD movies and the two sort of big box editions that I don't have. Yeah. Ah, oh dear, I need to get out more, don't I? Jeez <laughs> Louise. You, know, you, you mentioned this last time, uh, that, that game Africa. I think that was... Uh... A secret excitement for most gamers when they saw it. Uh, no one would go to school or, or go to work and say, "Did you see Africa? It looks amazing! I can't wait to get that." But, <laughs> but you were sitting there at A3 going, "Oh, actually, that looks pretty good. I want that, but I won't admit it to anyone." I remember I had a, um, I had a 360 at the time, and I saw the Africa trailer drop, and I was like, "All the other stuff, forget it." Africa, I was like, "Oh." I think I might have bought the wrong console. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, and I did get a PS3, but it never came here to the UK. So, uh, mm. you know, d- disappointed. But getting hold of a copy, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for one to crop up in the UK. And finally one did. And I was like, i got to have it. Remortgage the house again for the fourth time. You, you know, no one's not got four mortgages now. So mm-hmm. I thought, yeah. why not? Four mortgages, three wives. It goes on and on, <laughs> and a room full of degrading and rotting plastic and silicon, you know, yeah. that seemingly had, appreciates in value as it depreciates in quality. Unbelievable. I had so many, you know, air quotes, games of shame growing up because you cannot be cool, you know? Yeah. Spy of yeah. the Dragon? Nah, I don't play that game. But I really was, and I really enjoyed it. No one knew. Yeah. A lot of teenagers <laughs> had other materials under their bed. Bobby had Sparrow the Dragon trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, if that's news that Bobby had certain clandestine materials under his bed, let's have some real news. So scouring the very darkest regions of the internet to bring you the latest stories. First up, I shall go first, seeing as I've got my teeth in and the polygrip is firmly attached. Time to write a haiku. The real-life island of the Tsushima will be honouring the work of Sucker Punch Productions by making both the game director and creative director of Go to Tsushima permanent tourism ambassadors. Tsushima Mayor Hiroki Hitakatsu said this is being done because the pair have spread the name and history of Tsushima in the world in such a wonderful way, making them the first ambassadors to be awarded for sharing the name and the history of the island through their works. Sony will now collaborate with Tsushima Island to set up a new tourism campaign designed to teach fans about the place and its historic landmarks. In a statement, Hitakatsu said, Even a lot of Japanese people do not know the history of the Genko period when it comes to the world. The name and location of Toshima is literally unknown. So I cannot thank them enough for telling our story with such phenomenal graphics and profound stories. Nate Fox, the games director, and Jason Connell, the creative director, will receive an award and the letter of appreciation to mark their efforts. The mayor then goes on to explain that he 
didn't appoint them as ambassadors to ensure any sort of collaboration in the future. This is all about Ghost of Tsushima. I did not appoint them for the purpose of having them to do anything in the future. Thanks to the two of them, Sucker Punch Productions and SIE, Sony Interactive Entertainment, I have heard from people all over the world who have learned about Tsushima through their works and now want to see now go to Tsushima. One example of this would be the fan base's pledge to help restore a damaged Torrey Gate on the island, which went on to surpass its funding goal by more than 500%. That campaign finished this past Saturday after more than 2,000 contributions. Yuichi Hirayama and one of Tushami's, Tashima's what? Why do I always give myself the Japanese pronunciations? Watasumi Shrine Priest said, we've received a great deal of support from the player of the Ghost of Tsushima game set in Tsushima, and I feel that it's God's guidance. I'm very grateful for the support so many people during a cramped life due to the coronavirus and the challenging economic situation. Apologies to any Japanese listeners. I've probably called the first guy Brian Catfood, and the third and second guy, I don't know disposable shopping bag for which i apologize um gentlemen that is a real beautiful story isn't it that's Mm -hmm. been going on for some time obviously the building of the shrine or the rebuilding of the uh the torrey gate and some other bits and bobs that's gone on there through people that have been inspired uh by games thoughts on that gentlemen i think uh video games are a, a hugely powerful medium um and it's it's one of those things where people are so passionate but that passion can bleed off into so many different areas uh i remember when that terrible tsunami hit japan uh and one of the biggest communities to to jump in there first and, and help out and anywhere they could was was the gaming community mm. um so you know i'm i'm not i'm not surprised by this thing i think uh games are a fantastic entertainment medium where you know we create these worlds that people live in um, and, you know, there's morals and there's, um, there's goodwill that comes from those games that spreads and helps change people's lives. And I think they, they in return tried to bring that into the real world as well, which is fantastic. Mm. I think yeah, that beautiful. might be the most eloquent and beautiful thing any, uh, anyone's ever said on the show. 100%. <laughs> I, I think ultimately now, I should use maybe a Minecraft sword and and probably knight you, Sir Mike Rouse <laughs> of the unofficial, the first knight of the show, if I may mm-hmm. be so bold. Sir Fantastic. Mike Rouse, arise. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Services to podcasts, that's what we shall say. Uh, Bobby, what's next out the, uh, out the post bag, friend? That it's alive. I like what you're uh, doing there. Thank you. Uh, I try. Uh, although the Xbox Series X or S was launched last November, Microsoft's console teams are still in the phase of transitioning everything across to, to, the, next gen, to the next generation. This includes the Xbox Design Lab, which was temporarily suspended last October. Uh, at the time, it was mentioned how the lab was preparing for its next evolution, which suggested the team was ready for the arrival of the new Xbox Elite, oh no, the new Xbox controller. Uh, earlier today, Team Xbox provided a minor update in response to a fan on Twitter. The good news is that Microsoft hasn't forgotten about the design lab, and yes, it'll be returning in 2021. The Twitter user was uh, Uncle Noli at Purple S1 Erp Slurp, <laughs> Purple Slurp, uh, no, March 4th, 2021. He says uh, at Xbox, when is design lab coming back? I need to make a custom controller for the new Series X. Got to get some purple in the setup. 
Xbox responded. The Xbox Design Lab will be back this year. We'll keep you posted as more details become available. Um, although the Design Lab has been down since last year, Microsoft has been releasing its own colorful controller for the Xbox Series XS. In recent times, it's launched a blue shock controller and a pulse red one. There has been a request for a green controller. So if nothing official is announced, perhaps a design lab creation will do the trick. I've seen the blue controller. It looks, it looks really, really nice. Design lab, man, is, is actually quite a cool innovation to, you know, be able to customize bits and bobs and 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 really double down on that personalization it's nice that they're bringing it back one wonders why it probably even took a hiatus but it's coming back with x and s support so i would say full power to them do you think more developers should give you obviously you can go on to i think it's nike's website and you can build a, a pair of trainers from the ground up you yeah. want the sole x color you want the the upper to be x you can have these stripes you can have this color laces and blah 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 and this is really the the controller equivalent of that do you think we should see more of that yeah i'd love to see more why not yeah it's great yeah i think uh, microsoft do a great job with this um i'm i'm a, I'm a sony fanboy even when i worked at microsoft um <laughs> but but Microsoft do some really good fan service that that I think Sony miss out on. Um, you know, and that that custom Pro controller is really cool. There's custom achievements they give out. Um, so you know, if you're a day one uh, purchaser of their console, there's yes. a, an achievement you can get. So they do some really cool things for for their community on Xbox, uh, which I would love to see other people do. You know, I'd love to be able to do something with the Nintendo Switch there official mm-hmm. shells for, for your joy pads that you could uh, get custom made for you or something like that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. It certainly beats me lying on the lounge room floor with some very tiny screws in my mouth and a couple of sort of scientific screwdrivers wondering, oh no, I've put it in upside down or I've left that screw. It's lost in the pile of the carpet. What am I going to do? Some would say yeah. I should probably sit at the dining room table and do a proper job of it. But no, I like to take consoles and controllers apart while watching some complete ramble on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what becomes of me, really. One would think it would be helpful if I actually watched a strip down of said controller or console while I was doing this, but no, I'm probably watching Farming Simulator or you know <laughs> something completely left field. Yeah. There's an insight, again, into our my strange <laughs> lockdown life that we lead. Um Bobby's like, well, the thing is, right, I'll put it all out there. There's no there's no secrets or shame here. If you've no got shame. anything that you uh, want to repent gaming-wise, might now be the time. We can forgive all sins, you know. Uh, <laughs> we can't forgive some sins, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Well, that's... <laughs> Uh, you, you'd be surprised. This unofficial controller, holy water, is it's next level. It's slightly acidic, so it will burn the skin. I'm sure that will get rid of everything. Um, final bit of news: as the guest on the show, it's always right and proper for you to step in. What are you? Uh, this obviously is built around uh, this amazing bit of news, and you, sir, as you will reveal shortly, have recently done a video on this using your insight as a AAA gaming developer and at night. Almost like a superhero, a YouTuber. <laughs> um, Indeed. Hit us up, please, sir. So 
protecting their investments. Mm. We've just reached the four-year anniversary of the Nintendo Switch, and admittedly, compared to the next-generation devices, the hybrid system is starting to show its age. How will Nintendo combat a possible decline in sales then? According to a new report from Bloomberg, a, vid- a video game giant will fight to maintain market dominance this holiday season by unveiling a new Switch model equipped with a bigger screen, Samsung OLED display. This new system could sport a thinner bezel as well. The information comes from people familiar with the plan, with Samsung Display Co. to reportedly being mass production on the 7-inch 720 resolution OLED panel as soon as this June. The aim would supposedly be to produce just under a million units, a million units Mm -hmm. per month and ship the first batch of panels to assemblies in July. That's pretty fast. Yes. Uh, Yoshia Tamura, the co-founder of display consultancy DSCC, shared the following information about the new panel. The OLED panel will consume less battery, offer high contrast, and possibly faster response time when compared to the Switch's current liquid crystal display. The unit will also support 4K ultra-high-definition graphics when paired with televisions, according to the same sources. Nintendo and Samsung representatives declined to comment, and Nintendo's president last month said there'd be no plans to announce a new version of the Switch anytime soon. Sneaky. Yes. So you've you've done a video on this. Um, one would imagine there's a little bit of foresight and understanding of that without wanting to get you in too much trouble. You felt confident enough to do a video on it. Yep. Um, what's your thoughts there? Is it going to be, um, for our listeners, obviously they can go check your video out, Retro Gamer Boy on YouTube. There's a finer repository of gaming eclectic mixes one could possibly never imagine to find. It's uh, I became a member as well. It's only a pound a month. I encourage everyone, everyone to swamp down there and throw that. Reach down the back of the couch, you found a pound. There's no better person to give that pound that you never thought you had to Mike. (laughs) All right? You get access to his secret videos. I want more secret videos, by the way. I want more. Yeah, just your personal little... uh, stories you know you you sat and went through your playstation collection and i wanted more of that to be honest i could watch you recondition a box live (laughs) uncut because i do that i've got a i would love to spend more time talking to you mike because i could spend hours talking to you about the different sharpies i've collected to match the different color boxes that i may recondition i've got this absolutely bang on purple for 32x unbelievable oh Oh, yeah an unofficial not that it's everything's unofficial, but the other Bobby's like, is this man really talking about Sharpies? Yeah, I am. I'm taking the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, an unofficial uh, Sharpie that set that I picked up from God knows where, but the purple in it is bang on. Well, we could geek out over this, couldn't we? We could have a whole podcast over this. Listen, if you want to come, I'm just from my own personal collection, Mike, if I'm honest with you, and I'll just listen back to me and you rambling on about colours, colouring crayons. (laughs) Moving things back swiftly to the news before we get distracted. Obviously, you've done this video. Is there any more you can give us there? Because is it going to upgrade the actual hardware so we can have better games, one would imagine? I, I, I doubt it. 
Um, there's a possibility they could do. Um, and a lot of people talk about the Switch Pro, uh, and they've got that really from Xbox and PlayStation because that's their their kind of business tact. If you look at Nintendo, it's more about let's make it bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, as as parts become cheaper, let's let's make it bigger and bump uh, the sales again. Um, so Nintendo haven't really ever released a console where they've split the market mm. um, in a generation. And it's it's a very scary thing for a console developer to do, to split their market, because developers suddenly have two consoles to develop for mm. uh, if they're just releasing on, on one device. Um, and what you often find, if you look at the Pro um, for the PlayStation Pro, is that developers will go for the lowest spec machine because that's the easiest to develop for and the one that it's most likely to fail on and then try up res a little bit. So you don't get you don't get the full potential of a game when you have these split um sp- specifics in a console yes. um because they have to develop for for the, the 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 lower end machine. So I don't think Nintendo are about to do that. I think they're going to do their classic this is an XL. There'll be some technical benefits to it, um bigger battery, that 4K when it's docked but you'll be able to buy uh, a brand new game and it should work on your original Switch. There's no way they're going to drop that X millions of sales they've got and no publisher would say, hey, look, I'm just going to develop something specifically for this new screen device, which may have a million or two million sales in its first year uh, and leave the rest of the Switch market behind. They're not going to do that. So um, XL is where I'm going for this. Less pro, more XL. Okay. This this, uh, 4K when docked, um, one would imagine well, there's going to be some upscaling there for original Switch games, do you think? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they do that currently. When um, when you look at the um, game uh, when it's running in handheld, it's doing dynamic uh, resolution changes, right? Mm-hmm. So when it gets a little bit harder, it drops the resolution. Uh, and, and when it's less intense on the game, it ups the resolution again. So I think that's what we're probably looking at. I don't think the games have been developed in 4K because obviously it's got to run uh, at that lower resolution yeah. on, on, the, on the game cartridge. And you know, you'd know you have to increase texture sizes and all sorts of things for it to look good in 4K. So I think it's going to be an uprising. Yeah, and one would imagine space is tight as it is on yes. those carts and obviously on the storage medium of the Switch itself unless you've upgraded or done whatever. So again, you've always got to work to the lowest common denominator. So that scaling of games from a software point of view is going to be a tough is going to be a tough gig for them isn't it yeah totally and it's mm-hmm. it's expensive those cartridges right if you look at a lot of developers now they could if you look at doom doom's a classic example they could have gone for a more expensive cartridge and had the whole of doom on one cartridge mm-hmm. um but it it took away from their profit and their bottom line so what they do is they um put the installer on there um, with a bit of single player gameplay on there and then they put the rest of it uh, as a download that way they don't pay the manufacturing cost of the larger carts for the for the game so um, you'll see that if you know if you went to 4k uh, most games would just be installers on the cartridge um, prompting you to download which I doubt you know not many developers want to do that Mm. no it's a bit naughty isn't it especially if you're at using some very strange examples here but let's say you're a young kid doesn't really have the you know the internet or bother you, you kind of 
take the console on the road all the time. You get you talk Mumsy into getting you a new game in the shop. You put it in the in the console in the car, and it's like, no friend, you're not playing this. <laughs> Which is he's, he's a little bit naughty, really. Well, I suppose that draws a very neat line under the news. Thank you, Mike, for your wonderful insight there. I think it's added a, a whole other layer of granularity to the news. Uh, so thank you for that. Question is, did we miss anything? Do you have an opinion or take on the news we missed? And let's face it, as always, we probably missed the biggest game in news story of the whole week, but we'll just let it pass us by like a log in the water. Um, Bobby, if the collective masses want to get in touch and say to me, George, why are you playing Africa? You've missed that massive piece of news. You basically sleep on all the hot content. Give yourself a shake. How can they get in contact and tell me that I'm a blithering baboon? They could reach us at Twitter or Instagram at Unofficial Controller Podcast. They can email us at questions at Unofficial Controller Podcast. And if they want, in those links, they can come and join the uh, Discord. Let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Okay. And now, El Buccio got on the phone early this week and he, he literally burnt my ear off. He's like, Are you still giving away a prize for best comment of the month? I said, Yes. He said, are you charging people to be part of your community? I said, no. He said, hang on a minute. Are you running this discord for free of charge? Are you insane? I said, yes. He said, hang on a minute. You're not giving away a prize for best community member on discord every single month. Are you? I said, yes. El Buccio said to me, do you not enjoy living? Obviously in a Mexican <laughs> accent, which I can't mm -hmm. do. Bobby, are you telling me that we're still giving away all this stuff completely free of charge? Yeah, 100%. Oh, God. Yeah. He's going to have my guts for guards, you know. <laughs> when I signed the show over to him, I didn't realise it would be so intense. Uh, okay. Well, hopefully we can navigate through that with style and aplomb. And if you've just heard all that and you're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I'm not on the Discord. Yeah, it's free, guys. And you yeah, get a prize. Don't. Get mm -hmm. on board. If you've not commented on the Instagram or the Twitter, what's wrong with you? It costs nothing. You get your name read out on the air. You get your comment featured either by me and Bobby or in the turn of a guest, you get to hear them respond to your question. Totally free. Unbelievable. And we have really nice guests because no one has ever made fun of me on the show. Perfect. Why would anyone make fun of you? I don't know. You know, gaming accessories, zero clue. Mm, that, I say Pokemon instead of Pokemon. Yeah, but that's that's become part of the <laughs> you know? law now. You've got to call them Pokemans. Um, yeah, Pokemans, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the review was real rough, bro. Yeah, it, we've, had, we've had better shows. Yeah. Listen, before he wonders why we even exist as a podcast, let's not let him get out the door, okay? We've nailed it shut. He literally cannot leave at this point. So we'll turn the light on him. We might even have to feed him some of that cheese as he called it to get the responses that we need from him but it's time for the feature the what you know the meat in the unofficial controller sandwich and we're very lucky here this week normally we're just dining on wafer thin ham the value stuff that's probably only 10 percent pork this week thanks to the wonderful inclusion of mr mike rouse we have the best we've gone to the deli counter and we've got the finest ham in this sandwich that money can buy as always, we reached out to you guys on the socials and we've woven your thoughts into the topic and the feature. Mike, are you ready? I uh, am. This, in a, this is your lifestyle. May I grab the red book and don my Michael Aspel mask 
Yes, I killed him, hollered out his face, and I'm wearing it as a mask. As I say, Mike Rouse, this is your life. Only joking, but let's go through this chronologically, if we may, as best we can, as your career, sir, is almost too big and accolade-filled to fit in a single show, but we'll do our level best. So without further ado, your gaming career started at the University of Portsmouth with a distinction in computer animation. From there, you got a job at PlayStation's own London Studios, a.k.a. Team Soho. They were fresh off some of my favourite games. No, right, not Spice World, and that's what you were thinking. But the amazing Porsche Challenge and Total NBA, a.k.a. NBA Shootout for American listeners. Now, before we dive into those questions, um, obviously going to university and, and, and studying computer animation, you had your mindset quite clear and firmly set on a job in the industry. Um, what made that decision for you um so i've always been into games um and so i had this kind of clarity of thought when i was in my early teens that all i wanted to do was was be part of making video games um and so it, it kind of really made all my life decisions from that point on really easy um you know i didn't do super well at school uh, i spent a lot of my time in hospital um i had really bad asthma um mm. i'm a super dyslexic person uh and so there were there are a lot of challenges there to to get into gaming um but every decision i made was with a view of i want to get into games so um you know i i got a job as a a secretary in a news office and then i volunteered to work in the graphic design department on weekends for free and then they were they brought me in and said why do you want a job there and i said yes I did that for a couple of years and then I saw an advert for the University of Portsmouth. I was like, okay, I'm going to go there and see if I can get into that. Um, my professional uh, experience in graphic design got me into that. Wow. Um, and then Sony came along and they were looking for people to, to basically do a little bit of uh, cheap labor to help them finish off their games. And I threw myself at that. Um, I was the only one to get given an internship at, at the end of that. Um, but ev everything I did, all my decisions, um, from quite a young age were, um, I want to do this. Um, and it made it, yeah, it made everything quite easy. Uh, it, it was, it took a long time. I'm sure there's a, a quicker way of getting to the job that you want to do, but, um, knowing what I wanted to do and then just making sure that the decisions I made were ones that I thought would push me in that direction, um, are what, are what made my kind of dream job come true. I have to say, the motivation and dogged determination expressed by you against, at the time when you were young, when you were young, obviously some of those setbacks, like you mentioned dyslexia and, and your asthma and not doing terribly well at school. And I have to admit, when I was that age, I was wondering how next best to get some sneaky boost from the off license and get into, <laughs> you know, whatever XYZ's pants at the time. And, and you expressed almost a singular focus to to really find a way to get that experience and then just get buggering on in there, didn't you? Just to keep yeah. knocking that door down, Mike, I have to say, we will go through your blitting career, but one would imagine that that much focus at the start really resulted in the path that you ended up going on. Um, so that's, that's wonderful. Bobby, first out the mailbag, because we've had some we've had some very interesting questions. Bobby, the first question. In fact, one thing we didn't pre-warn you about, we have a thing we do when we have a, 
a new listener. I don't want to say it too loud because it might invoke it. Now, we clap and we say new listener. You can join in. Most people do. If you don't want to, that's fine. So, Bobby, who's this? It's a new listener. listener. (laughs) His name is (laughs) Stanley.Almond. Okay. Uh, Question for him. How did you get to work for Sony? Is there anything you would have changed about the games you helped make? Hmm. Um, wow, that's a big question. Um, so I think I covered covered the Sony thing. Yes. Um, that you know it, it, it was an amazing opportunity. I was I was supremely lucky as well to get that opportunity there. Um, it, it's you know it's it is a rare thing to work for a big AAA company right off the bat for, from university. So um, yeah, I was I was super lucky. Um, when you were. One thing I'd just add, when you were doing your slave labor for them, were you working Mm. on titles from the PlayStation 1 era or was it PlayStation 2 that you you were working in the sweatshop for? So we were were all PlayStation 2 at this point. The PlayStation hadn't been launched. It wasn't released. So we'd uh, finished off on all the PS1 games. Yeah. uh, And we were were on to to the PS2 stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, there's, There's so much I would have changed um about the games that i helped make probably would have put some better gameplay in the getaway um i'll, I'll tell her if we get onto the getaway I'll, I'll i'll give you some uh fun antics about about that game um i think always with these games um it, it's quite difficult to make them they're they're hard right we're we're making everything from scratch unlike a film where you'll have the script and there's the actors already there and the lighting's already there we're making the lighting we're making mm. the actors so um and it's you know at the back of your mind you, you don't want to make a bad game you want to be something that uh make something that you're proud of and that other people will will really enjoy uh so, you know, you always look back and you're like, I wish I could have changed that. I wish we had more time for this. I wish we had more money to do this. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the same with every games developer. You know, there's always things you want to change. I want, one would imagine that, well, two points that you've made there, and there's been some absolute stinkers of games. And I would love to get sort of in the mindset of those people as they're releasing, because within their circle, they're probably like, this is, you know, they're going to love this this is going to be a belter. Then it comes out and it's like, well, oh, it's bombed on the reviews and no one's buying it. You know, what, what, what don't they get? And obviously I wonder if within the silo of, of building the game over, over the course of making it, maybe you've got good on the controls or maybe you're kind of used to the nuances and, and you, you don't need someone to explain because you, you know the inherent way that you want to play it, but that doesn't necessarily translate well to an outside experience coming in because they haven't been there since day one. So, they don't know uh that often makes me wonder because you, you flick through magazines time memorial even today there's still a few going and you see low review scores and you're like oh god you know that must hurt because although it's not reviewed very well it's taking just as long to make you know obviously yeah. some games look absolute stinkers but it still doesn't mean that the people weren't working yeah. awfully long hours uh is that something that's ever struck you with the sort of critical reception of some games yeah and and you know there's 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 so many different factors that can can make a game a bit of a stinker right it could be you know there's some games i look at and you're like that's terrible and then you find out that the team had three months to make the game yeah because their whole business model is we make games for other people yeah um you know so or uh the team didn't have the budget uh to do what they wanted 
or they're making something completely new, right? And there's uh, so much opportunity for you to mess up or get something wrong when you're trying to create something new. So there's mm. there's never kind of one um, thing that 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 makes a game terrible. Um, you know, there's a there's multiple factors that could be in there. Um, you may not be the audience, and that's why you think it's terrible. You know, yes. there's a lot of people that have played games that I've I've made that think, well, this is terrible. Um, but no matter how terrible a game is, there's always one person in the world that that is their most favorite game ever. Yes. Uh, and I think as a, for me, at least as a games developer, um, it's, you know, it's those people when they come to me and say, you know, that is the, that changed my life. Uh, that was the thing that supported me through a bad situation. I really enjoy playing that, that, um, that makes up for all the bad reviews you might get and the lack of sales you might get. But it's it you know it's very very I, I doubt there's very few studios that are there to make terrible games no. because terrible games don't sell well but uh, no, they they yeah. they're all they're all limited by time money aspiration talent yeah. um you know there's there's so much things that that stop someone from making a great game okay well back to your story as i turn a page in the red book it's the, the first game you worked on as far as i can reckon was the this is football sony's first party stab at cracking the market what was that like uh for you as a as a first role because i believe you worked on the the characters well i say yep. the characters the actual football players faces yes um it's a lot of faces mike it is um <laughs> It was a pretty challenging role as well because we, we were using a lot of techniques um, that were new. Um, obviously, we'd just come off of PlayStation 1 um, and we're now onto PlayStation 2, which was really doing textures properly and 3D properly. Um, so there was a lot of learning curves there. Uh, and for me, I was having to paint people's faces and make them look like the footballers in real life so you know if you're going to get criticism it's going to be that doesn't look like the football player so there, yeah. there's a there is a lot of a lot of pressure there um but it was a huge amount of fun you know it was it was still very much old school gaming um very male dominated at that time lots of parties lots of drinking wow. um lots of long nights um and I was super young. So uh, for me, I, you know, I lapped it all up uh, at that point. And the games industry as a whole was was young. You know, at that time, if you were in your early 30s, you were considered a veteran, an old boy yeah. uh, of the industry uh, compared to today where, you know, if you're in your 60s uh, or maybe even your 70s, you're considered an old boy and veteran. So, the, the, you know, it was a very young industry back in the day there. So. Well, one thing I think... Um me and Bobby touched on a few shows ago and it's the, the film industry as a whole really got started in sort of 1909 with feature films. And, you know, by the 1950s, we were starting to see things that we would probably recognize and still sit and watch down today. The gaming industry started maybe in the seventies with Pong really as the first game game that we would see. And if we were to sort of map that across, we are currently in the sort of, mid to early 1950s as far as that journey as a medium goes so you know we've got we're maybe 30 years away from or 20 years away from the star wars moment as i would call it which i find quite fascinating in a way um there's so much left for the business to give um Mm. it's what a wonderful medium um before we get too swept up in that obviously from this is football 
um, you became a vehicle artist in the much-loved PS2 classic, The Getaway. Now, that was in development, um, I've been researching, since the PS1. Uh, do you want to tell us about it and the, the sort of shape you found it in when you arrived? Because was that developing in in Pillar with This Is Football? So in, in there's the Getaway Boys, you know, there and yeah. there doing what they do. I'm in here doing... David Beckham's changed his haircut last minute, so I've got to redo his queer for <laughs> shave his head, or whatever it is you're doing with David. Did you then, was it you finished up on that, or was it someone looked through the window and was like, he's pretty good at drawing that guy? Yeah, I. Um, so it actually happened during my internship uh, there. Um, I really liked the look of the getaway. So I went up there and started talking to some of the guys up there and they said, do you want to get, uh, have a go at doing some of the car wheels, some oh. of the car wheels. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I didn't really, uh, I was going from faces and, uh, painting textures for faces to <laughs> doing, you know, three spoke and four spoke wheels for cars. So, um, oh. Uh, I went on to that um, and um, I did about two weeks of work on that. And then uh, I had to go back to, to, to uni and they sent me a car to texture up. Um, so I did that uh, in blistering fast speed, sent that over to them. And they basically came back to me and said, do you want a full-time job now at Sony? Because we really like your stuff. Mm. Um, and I have, uh, I, I mean, I took that instantly. Um, so course. I, I, you know, there was an opportunity to take the degree at university or, or go off and do uh, work at Sony. So I took the uh, the Sony branch. Um, and then I joined the getaway uh, as, a, as a car artist. Um, and I'm super impatient. Um, I, I've got almost no concentration span. Um, so they gave me all this stuff to learn um, because I uh, about uh, the application I was using for 3D modeling. Uh, and I did about two hours of looking at it as like, uh, I'm not, I'm not reading this. I'm going to go make a car now. Uh, and yeah. so I made the BMW three series straight away and then just never looked back after that. It was uh, just straight into, to, to building the cars on the getaway. So some of your cars, I believe you worked on the Range Rover or the classic mm -hmm. Range Rover that's in the game. You worked on the MR2, mm -hmm. um, and you worked on some of the, as you call them, junker cars. Is there any car that kind of stood out for you as being like, yeah, that's, I play it now and I'm like, you nailed that. Because I think you nailed the MR2, by the way. Um, yep. But, you know, is there anything that stands out? Is there any one of those cars that you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy about that? Um, I really liked doing the rubbish looking cars mm -hmm. um, and messing around. There. Like the Honda Accord, I really love doing the Honda Accord. Um, if you look at that one, you'll notice there's the uh, religious fish icon on the back there. Um, oh. It's got the heat strips running through the window on the back window. Um, I really went to town with with that one. Um, and for an artist, doing the pristine, clean shine at, back in those days was pretty boring because that's just a flat color. Yeah. Um, where doing the grubby cars was where you know the real skill came in. You had very small textures to work with, and so trying to get this detail in um, was was challenging to do. So really enjoyed doing those, and then messing around with the physics of the car. I loved making those old cars very rolly, a bit rubbish on the brakes. So you know you'd hit the brakes and it'd take them a while, and they'd skid out of the back. Um, but huge amount of fun with those, those older cars, um, just professionally, but also for, as a gamer, you know, just they're the cars that you don't mind smashing up, uh, <laughs> and, and destroying. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think definitely those, those older cars were my favorite. 
Well, um, we have a question. Now, I believe I've had the pleasure of Mr. Zangief's company on one of your live streams, so I believe we've brought him over. Hopefully, we can lock him in, probably put him in a cupboard, throw away the key, feed him a small amount of cat food for a flat, but uh, we see him as a new listener. listener. No. <laughs> so it's like, oh, God, please, no. Uh, at Zangief at Seablood78. Uh, I mean... What's I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that's yes in Spanish. I don't know. He says, Mike, <laughs> what do you think is the best game to, to be released on the PlayStation 2? And why is it the getaway? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question, surely. Well, one would imagine he wants to hear your response. You don't have to answer the getaway. Um, but maybe if you do, you've got to justify why. Um, oh, it's such a hard question. It's so unfair. Um, the, the PlayStation 2 spawned uh, franchises of games that we still play today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just had so many fantastic games on there. Um, I think, you know, it's difficult to kind of call you, uh, your own games uh, because you live with those games for years, literally. Um, and it's it's hard. It, with time, you can affectionately look back at the game that you worked on, um, but often you're you're sitting uh, long hours. There's a lot of creative friction that goes into games. Mm. Uh, there are low points in them, and so you don't walk out of it and go, "I really want to now play uh, the getaway because I've been doing it for four and a half years." Yeah. Um, so it, it it's I wouldn't say that the, the getaway was my favorite, but it's amazing to hear how many people loved that game uh and how many fans and i think you know for me as a games developer that's been the thing that i've really brought away from me for, with the getaway is is how much uh, how many people loved it uh, and how special it was to to people um as for my favorite game i'm i'm uh, i'm in my um uh, box here with cheese and i brought a couple of choice games with me that i'm looking <laughs> along the side here you know i uh, forgot the playstation unfortunately but i can look at the back uh, of the box and uh, reminisce at what they they played like but um i really enjoyed final fantasy 10 yeah um i named my daughter after one of the characters because uh, mm, i wow. enjoyed that so much um love the metal gear solid series uh being continued on there um love jack and dexter uh first especially the uh, original one um but there's just so many games i mean i have something like 400 playstation 2 games uh and love they're, they're games that i absolutely love yeah. katamari damacy oh katamari damacy i imported that uh a fantastic game i don't know if anyone's played that but yeah that's the game where you roll things up yep yeah, the, yeah. my friend bo huge fan they just dedicated a whole show on that game yeah which i think is amazing genius genius game and and it you could only import it from japan so uh, i had to figure out what all the missions were like some of them were collect crabs um <laughs> so you'd end up playing uh, playing it. but yeah genius game but i think just too many to to pick up on on the playstation 2 but um really humbled that that people uh for some people the getaway is is their is their favorite game on that system Okay, well, um, we've got another question about the getaway, if we may. It's uh, it's my seemingly through the law of the show adopted son, uh, but Bobby's ginger brother, what's yeah. he got to say for himself? He says, uh, this is Ginger's game room. He says, is it true 
the harder you press X, the faster the car goes. Um, I, I, do you know what? I don't know. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I included that because the PlayStation 2 developed the rather interesting idea of um, almost pressure-sensitive buttons. So some games, I do believe Metal Gear Solid 2 incorporated a point where you you held you pressed the button or you held it down hard to kind of switch between scopes in a way. Uh, I don't know. I, do you know do you know what? I think it is true because I can remember you can feather the brake by changing um uh the, the amount of pressure you apply to to the button. But it's so long ago. Um uh, my memory has faded with time, unfortunately. Let's uh, not let the truth get in the way of this urban myth. Let's perpetuate yes, it. Let's propagate it, yeah. Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Next up, uh, a fellow uh, YouTuber, really. Um it, He's the man who makes this an 18-rated show just by asking mm-hmm. a comment, but it's a 16-bit prick. Uh, he's done a wonderful <laughs> video. He says, uh, fantastic. I love watching his videos on YouTube, especially the getaway ones he's done, as I have some great memories from playing this. My dad was originally from London, and we played this game together for the first time the day before we went down to Highbury to pick up the latest Arsenal strip that was coming out at the time. While driving around in the game, he would tell me the names of the areas and childhood memories he had from these areas as a youngster. I remember him being blown away by the surroundings and graphics. We'd been so used to games like GTA where the world was fictional. The Getaway was my first experience I can remember of a game being based in a real part of the world. Looking back at the game now, I feel it was far ahead of its time and really underappreciated. If it had to come out years later, it would have been a lot bigger than it was. The follow-up to the game Black Monday was fantastic. I'd also I'd love to see a remaster, straight remake of these two. I reckon uh, if it came out now, polished up, it would be go down a treat. There's a lot of gamers who may have missed this period in gaming might be put off by the graphics. Sorry for the rant. I say it was a rant. It seemed a bit prick. I think it was a, a glowing eulogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my question would be: Did the finished product? live up to your expectations to what it was before the project began. And also if you could go back, is there anything you could have changed or redone? I mean, you, you've kind of touched on that, but if there's anything else you want to say, thanks for giving me the opportunity to ask, ask the question. Looking forward to this episode. <laughs> Loads of people have asked this. What's the chance of getting a signed copy of the first getaway? One would imagine, you know, uh, probably not. Because we've we've kind of kidnapped him now, so he's basically asked me, put <laughs> yeah. him in a room, get him to sign one pound copies of the Getaway. Um, so there's, there's plenty to unpick there. The 16 pick, um, prick does videos. He's very much a, an undernoticed YouTuber. He he does some really almost video essays. You know the style, and mm. his editing is, is is very good. To be fair, and he's done one about the Getaway, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so he's he's almost like probably the getaway well after fat sangee form would imagine the getaway's biggest fan so to pick out of there um did the product live up final product live up to your expectation uh as to what it was before the project began and also if there's anything you could have changed or redone yeah it's it's a great question um no it didn't um and there was you know there was a lot of friction on that that team uh i remember we were all in the boardroom doing a playthrough of uh the e3 game mm-hmm. and we got one of our programmers that uh, didn't really play the game much at all uh to play it mm-hmm. um and he struggled with all the controls he struggled with everything um and i remember him uh the 
you know, members of the team, including the uh, game director, laughing at, at how he was doing. Uh, That's and myself, is that Brendan. Yes, yes. Uh, and myself and uh, my uh, car uh, partner um, were, yeah. were quite upset by this, and we we kind of interrupted and we said, "Look, this is this is not great because this is someone who hasn't played our, the game much at all." This is a representation of of our user base, um, and he's having a terrible time of it. And we're we're laughing at it. We're we're actually should be addressing it. I was super junior at the time, so it, it was a comment that got pushed pushed to the side. May, but, may um, I be as bold to say that uh, I, I think I mentioned to you off air that L.A. Noir is one of my favourite games, and. Um, that all came out of Brendan's mind, but my understanding of following that game through development and and watching some making of documentaries, Brendan's quite uh, a, a harsh taskmaster, to put it politely. How did he react? And may I say to you, balls of steel, sir. Uh, how did he react to you sort of pulling him up on this? Um, for me, that's a fascinating insight. I, I, I would have looked at the floor and just sort of coughed and scratched the back of my neck, but you found, you found the gumption within you to say, actually, no, this is, what was his response? Um, I think it was very measured. Uh, you know, he, he's an intelligent guy. Mm. Um, I think it was, I think he was just more flippant, um, with his response, you know, and, and pushed it to it to one side. Um, I mean, ultimately, as we were going through our mastering, we got a bug from the head of QA and it was an A bug and it said, this game has no gameplay in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, you know, Brendan's focus and, and his strength um, is storytelling. Um, yes. He, he yes. went off, he went off the, he left the dev team for maybe a month to go film an advert um, for the, for the game. Mm. Um, Cause he, he, you know, that was his passion was he wanted to make films. He wanted to bring films yeah. Uh, in, yeah. into games, but I think he was just too weighted on, on the, the film side and script side of things. And um, it meant that for the longest time, the game had lots of mechanics, but actually no gameplay in it. And it, and it only really came together in the last three or four months. Um, so the, you know, the getaway was a technical marvel. Um, it really yeah, was. Definitely. We were doing, doing stuff that no one were doing. We had, uh, seamlessly streaming interiors and exteriors. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was the first cover based shooter, uh, mm. certainly the first cover based shooter for open world, um, streaming all that traffic, the people, the dialogue, the motion capture. So it was, it was technically, um, stunning at the time, but for think, uh, playing it recently, the texture work in it, I think is what strikes me. I know you could look at someone would see the game now and just dismiss it out of hand. But at the time, especially on a CRT TV, the texture work, Mark, is fantastic. Yeah, there was, there was some great work that went into it. Um, it was a labor of love for the team, but I think there, there was a large section of the team that when it, when it came out were a little bit, disappointed it wasn't more we were in direct competition with grand theft auto mm. um so brendan uh, knew the guys up at rockstar north oh, right. and um we were pushing to try release before them because we knew that essentially whoever released first would would uh, you know the spoils would go to that victor yeah um but we were so far behind on getting the gameplay in that we ended up shipping i think a year after they shipped yes uh, and and so you know for the team it was pretty hard because you know we were 
labeled as copycats or you know um this is um a, a ripoff of 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 uh, um, gta which was um pretty far from the truth um you know that both those games were in competition there was some healthy competition in there you know uh, they referenced the getaway in in GTA. They, uh, they did, and, didn't they? Yeah, so it, it was hard to kind of swallow those, those kind of uh, pills there. But um, I think ultimately there's, there was a lot to be proud of on that game, uh, especially, you know, the art team did a fantastic job. Yeah, I, th- I think that to... I think that the getaway owes less to sort of GTA uh, on, on in the PS2 era and more to with its cover-based and sort of like yes, there's open world driving sections, and 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 that would pr- probably be where people would do the comparison from. But it, it feels to me like a, a very very early forerunner, if I may be so bold, of something that Naughty Dog tried with the um, Uncharted franchise. You know, the cover based, the health style, although probably wasn't nailed exactly to keep the gameplay flowing as it is in Uncharted, where you know each this is something else at Rock Bobby's world. Um, in the Uncharted games, the actual glowing red on the screen isn't you getting hit with a bullet. It's actually your luck running out and the very, all the other bullets miss. And then the final bullet that gets you is what kills you, which I've always found a fascinating concept. And obviously we have the famous wall lean of uh, Mr. <laughs> Hammond there, but uh, yeah, we no. hated that. We hated that on the team. Uh, I mean, there's, there's obviously some people that came up with it, but it was, I think, again, another first was, you know, one the first game, if not one of the first games that had no UI and it was all um, contextual information being uh, displayed to you, you know, and, you know, the blood on the jacket, you see that getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that's how injured you are. Um, so, you know, I think what could have been better is just it fading over time. In, in number two, we got rid of that and we just put health packs in, right? Um, yeah which is what a lot of us wanted in the first one, which is these health box, but, but Brendan wanted it to be quite filmic. Um, and, um, you know, we did have the argument of, uh, well, it's not really filmic that you lean up against the wall mm. and recover your health. I always uh, wondered how that would go down as a counter argument. Cause it, it does yeah. seem like a complete, you know, we want it to be filmic. Like surely someone ripping a first aid kit off the wall and wrapping a bandage around their arm and, you know, pulling tight on a bit of tape would be, more filmic than yep i just sweat these bullets out don't worry i'll get, I'll get to it in a minute no. oh, just catch my breath it's yeah um i don't know it swings and roundabouts before we uh let's 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 crack on um next question is spadabinks to retro gaming He's messaged in and he says, I have a question. Uh, where do I send my copy of the getaway to get signed by at the retro gamer boy? Uh, uh, serious note, uh, how easy would it be for me to, for the team to remaster a game like the getaway for new consoles? Would he be on board with a project like this that came along? Uh, um, gaming controller emojis, uh, uh, trophy emojis, uh, and uh, a Union Jack flag instead of the Italian flag, which I normally do, sir, as a one-off as the getaway is based in London. So um, one of our Italian heritage listeners. Um, how easy would it be to remaster that game? Uh, technically, probably relatively easy. Um, but uh, as I discussed in a, a video I put out recently, um, a lot of it comes down to licensing. Mm. uh it's you know it's a real world city uh and 
back then when we made the game, a lot of rules, regulations, laws, how people perceived video games were very different to, to nowadays. Um, it's just the car licensing alone. Um, in the getaway, you can shoot people in the car, then yeah. uh, shoot the engine so they burn inside that car. Um, and you can imagine you're in a manufacturer and you're saying, hey, we're going to redo uh, this game and your character's going to, uh, your cars are going to be in it. Uh, and you'll be able to kill people in those cars <laughs> and, and burn them. So yeah. <laughs> um, it, the licensing will be, will be difficult. Obviously, London's changed a bit in that time. Um, some buildings um, have uh, licensing on them. So if you want to have them in there, you'd have to pay for that. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's um, the the technology we use. We used ordnance survey maps to make sure we got the roads uh, our system uh, correct. You'd have to pay for ordnance survey uh, licenses again, um, music licensing again. Um, all the actors would have to have new contracts signed because it would be essentially a new game. Mm. Um, so it's not it's it's not impossible. It's just. How much does Sony want to do it? And Sony are more interested, I think, at least when I was working there, at making games that showed off what the console could do. Yes. Um, and the problem with a, a remake like that for the uh, or a, an HD remaster for the getaway is that it doesn't really show off what the console can do. Um, it's fan service. Um, and to be honest, when we look at remakes like um, the Crash Bandicoot remake, Sony sold that off, that license off. And so yeah. it was a different IP owner that was, uh, or a different owner that was looking to make money off of Crash Bandicoot rather than Sony saying, let's make remake Crash Bandicoot. So possible, but I think very unlikely. More, um, a more reasonable outcome is that they continue the series in some way. Mm. kind of spiritual successor really in blood and truth and the london heist vr missions mm. i would say although you know me and you talked about that last week off air but the uh, no one from team soho apart from probably the the cleaner and the the coffee machine repairman really exist there anymore for that to have any sort of direct lineage but maybe a certain a nod to their roots one would imagine yeah and um you know, the, Sony have announced they're doing a new VR headset uh, and yeah. the, the London studio probably put out one of the premium uh, and best experiences for VR. So I would imagine that their studio is geared up to support that new headset if a new one's coming out. And have you played Blood and Truth? I haven't played, although I was quite excited to see it because it looked quite innovative and in, in how it one was of One of, if not the best experience I've had in the PSVR. At, you know, just just go for it and it it, it is strikingly good fun and by the time it finished and you know spoilers you end up parachuting over london um like this times where it feels like a game from ps3 because of the way they have to make it work for the Mm -hmm. for the vr headset to utilize it but a real fun, wonderful experience full of gameplay and fun bits like you, you vape in it and all sorts of weird stuff. So it's a, a bigger boys game, but yeah, yeah, interesting. Bobby reach deep into the mailbag. One feels this is another professor Pliskin war and peace tome. What have you got for us, sir? He says, uh, certainly an interesting guest you guys have on course of game debating here at the unofficial controller 
college lecturers, George and Bobby. Unfortunately, though, while I have heard all of the title Mr. Rouse has been involved in once the Book of Spells and Wonder Book accessory, none of the titles featured are to my interest. I'm sorry, but to be respectable, one question I have for Michael is, as a fellow creative myself, I'm a writer planning out his first novel to do over the summer. How do you say consistent in tone, mood, or style? You have going for a project from this initial production and planning stages to the final product it ends up being. I say as a comparison, I want to do a story with emphasis on humor, yet with just enough realistic and emotional moments, such as the Uncharted series or Persona 4, to make the cast more closely linked. The, uh, the plenty of comedy more enjoyable and the reflective and somber moments more impactful as a result. Won't be UC without an overly worded comment from me. Hey, George, two crying, laughing emojis. <laughs> so let, let's let's reach deep into that comment and pull out the questions. Maintaining emphasis and tone from original conception to completion. Is that a challenge that you find as a games developer community? Yeah, totally. And especially as you get into um, the bigger AAA games, because you've got so many people that have to... Um, pull in the same direction um and they all are very individual in how they think something should be executed so it's it's challenging to do so it's challenging to do when you're a single person when you're a team of 400 a thousand um it, it's 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 even um uh, it's even more challenging and the way we we adapt uh to this in in the games industry is that we have um leaders leadership uh in in each area so we have the lead artist uh, lead designer lead audio engineer lead audio designer um and those people work with the game director and that smaller group work on tone and consistency mm-hmm. and they're oh, always wow. reviewing it um and then they'll go back to their teams and then they'll work with their teams on helping deliver that um, and each one of these subdivisions will have a producer and the producer is there to make sure consistency is maintained as well um, and quality is maintained as well as the normal things, you know, from producers scheduling and looking after stuff. Uh, and so that lead, what we do is we pair leads and producers together um, and to, together they help maintain uh, and critique the work to ensure that it's it's always consistent. We often have playthroughs weekly um, of the game to make sure it's all the same. The game director will be doing it. Ultimately, the game director will have the vision, um, but he is not the whole sole vision uh, holder or she is not the sole vision holder. They they will have a number of people that will will play into the decision-making there. Um, mm. But they'll review it. They review it as a leads team. Um, they play the games and then they come back with changes. They may say, hey, look, this is tonally off. We need to go back and change this. So it's a the development cycle is constantly review, uh, feedback, change, review, feedback, change. Um, and one of the biggest advantages or one of the biggest opportunities is also the biggest threat and and that is we do review uh the work constantly um and it's an advantage because you're always trying to make things better Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a threat because you could just get stuck in that phase uh, and not move on as you're as you're trying to seek out perfection um so it's it's every team does it differently we have some some teams that have people that lead from the front, uh, you know, Dave Jaffe with um, with uh, God of War, 
very um, dominant personality. This is how we're going to do it. And this is the only way we're going to do it. Right. Uh, other teams are more open and they're like, we want the, you know, the experience of the team to come through this. Um, so, you know, the, the teams like Assassin Creed's teams are much more like that. Um, so everyone does it differently, but we have a structure in place that ensures that tone um, and quality is persistent throughout the game. Amazing. It's almost like um, the film industry have their dailies where they ch check through the scenes. Um, yeah. That, you know, I find that fascinating. I mean, the early days of the dailies for a video game must, be, must look very broken, <laughs> you know, with a guy just sort of skating across to an area and then kind of flicking his arms and the shoot mechanics just being very sort of bolted on just to... Is there a sense of joy when you kind of... Do you ever keep like week one dailies as I've just termed them and then look at them in week 52 and go look how far we've come or, or is it just such a natural evolution that you've kind of forgotten skater man yeah um <laughs> we absolutely do do that uh, but different teams do it in different ways some teams use it as a barometer for like how well have we done and where are we now other teams use it for just interest look this is where we were uh, yeah. and this is where we are now um those are actually some of my favorite parts of development is when we look back at what the game looked like. Um, so a game I recently worked on, um, an open world city, we looked back um, at what the city looked like and it was gray textures, boxes, uh, and then we looked at it um, about two months from launch and it was one of the most glorious uh, 3D cities, I think, that has been created for, for um, a console game. So yes. um, it's from that perspective, it's a big morale booster. Um, but we also do use it as a tool to look back at where we are, to make sure that we're still on, on pace with where we were. And mm. if we're not, um, what, what made us make those changes in the game? You know, if it's changed a lot, have we lost our way? Um, or actually is this an evolution of, of where we were, um, which is often the case when you're making a new game. Hmm. Okay. On a, on a slightly different tack, we just haven't left the gravitational pull of the getaway. Sadly, Mr. C, he says getaway was a superb game. Question for Mike. There was a mission set in an art gallery that has some great modern automotive art. Who was the artist? I'd love to get a print to hang on the wall. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> Great question, um, and he's yeah. absolutely right. I think, uh, I think he was a big fan of the artwork uh, within there. He works in the motor motor industry, does Mister C, and I think that that art area has stuck in his mind for a great deal of time. Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, I, I can't even remember the artworks on the wall. So, you know, great job for, for remembering <laughs> that. Um, some, some of the artwork in that, in that came from the team. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of it was licensed, but uh, the team would have probably drawn a lot of that. They probably just sort of scanned in some conceptual art that they were maybe doing for the, for the game, right? Yeah. Um, really good to combine a, a few things here. Uh, the gaming Graham, he's a, New, new listener, listener. as is JSTAX 600. Uh, he's had a clap. Uh, oh, Mike wants to do it. Let's give him one. New, okay. new listener, listener. Uh, and Hammerboy 67. They're all clamoring, and I think we've kind of covered this off. But when will a new version be released? Um, before we move on, obviously, the reference gangs London there that's the PSP game. 
Mm. You weren't directly involved with that, but they went into the Hurt Locker and pulled out some of your car models, I believe. Gang yep. of London, not aged particularly well on the PSP. Sold a little yeah. bit off the of the hype wagon of the getaway. Um, sadly, not living up to that hype, sadly. Um, moving that to one side. Uh, <laughs> obviously, we don't know if a new version is going to get released. I think we would say the spiritual successor is the blood and truth and whatever that they're cranking out for VR now. Uh, if you want your jelly deals and all that sort of jazz, that's where you got to go back to your story, Mike working at team Soho. You also worked on the getaway sequel. How did that compare to the previous game? Um, it actually, it was a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, Brendan had moved on. Um, and, um, uh, Naz took over. Naz was our lead engineer, our lead coder from the last game. Um, and it was a little bit more of a cooperative uh, game development. You know, earlier I talked about, the, you know, the Jay Jaffies of the world. Brendan was definitely one of those um, who has a vision and the team followed that. And um, Naz was more um, open to, to ideas. Um, and so I found myself having a bigger role in the team. Um, my partner who made the cars with me went off to join Brendan on Team Bondi at Team Bondi oh. as a lead artist. Uh, and so I took over that um, car department. Um, and I had a lot of um, views on how I thought some of the exterior gameplay should take uh, uh, should go. So I also um, took on some of the exterior missions uh, and helping design some of those exterior missions where there were car chases. Um, oh wow! And there's there's one particular car chase um, where you go down an alleyway and you can. There's two levels you can go up and there's destructible objects that you can smash through. Yeah. Um, that that I put together, which we just wanted to make some of the car chases a little bit more exciting than they they were in um, the getaway. Um, and we'd improve things like physics. So in the getaway one, if you hit a railing, you'll just stop. Yes. Whereas in, in Black Monday, they go flying all over the place, um, which which made it a little bit easier one thing i've always found quite odd between the getaway and the black mondays the the black black monday sort of adopted a more gta style controller map and also the shooting section had lock-ons and you also had camera map to the right stick this time and to a a more someone who's grown with gaming and in plays modern systems as well the black monday feels like just much more of a coherent experience Mm. what 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 went i don't understand what went wrong the people that did the critics expect more or even the, even the metacritic is seemingly low for the game i i just never been able to work out the the the, the, the i can't weigh it up like it is a more friendly experience than the really harsh abrupt getaway original i think um people wanted more um there was also some backlash a lot of people i think there's some press that were hoping the original getaway would be more um it's it's difficult it's difficult to tell you know and often there's a lot of people that um regardless of how bad the first one was they'll hold that one quite close to them as Mm. you know as 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 being canon uh even down to to mechanics um but we made a lot of changes and we were inspired by gta and yeah. that's where a lot of those changes came from. And likewise, the GTA team were inspired by the getaway. So they introduced mm. cover mechanics into Vice City. Yeah. Um, a lot of the work that we'd done on cars and the damage in getaway one, they brought onto GTA Vice City. Um, so there was a number of things that, you know, we, both teams were feeding off each other. You know, we'd 
both teams were in new ground, new territory. These were these two games were the first of their kind, um, and so you know we learnt off of each other um, on on how to make uh, improvements um, to to our game. So yeah, I think the, the getaway uh, Black Monday was um, a, a more solid uh, experience. Um, you know, we had a lot of work that was already done. We didn't have to rebuild the city. We edited and changed stuff, and so that extra time went into making the game uh, better. Um, mm. You know, the cars. I redid uh, entirely how the damage system works on the cars. There's side damage that we did where um, I created this texture that looks 3D, and as you bump against it, the damage and scratches slowly fade in. Um, and it's actually a technique that they brought into um, 24 The Game, which was one of our sister studios was making. Um, that so that is, a, is a much overlooked game, if I might say. That that actually is one of the rare PS2 PAL games that will track into uh, 480p, Progressive Scan. Yeah, and It looks great. So that piece of nugget of information I find absolutely amazing. Uh, like, yes, it's aged, but, you know, much like the getaway, there's there's something in there to love. So to know that yep. your creative juices have seeped into uh, <laughs> Jack Bauer's uh, digital escapade, it brings me much joy, Mike. Um, referring back to this red book of your life, your next experience with the PlayStation brand involved working on the much-loved and sadly missed PlayStation Home. You're also involved in the making of PlayStation trophies. PlayStation trophies, without those... Our, co- our co-host, Bobby, would have no reason to even draw breath. Man's <laughs> obsessed. He's got more of those than I've had hot dinners. And I can tell you one thing, Mike. I'm a hot dinner lover. <laughs> so PlayStation Home. Um, there's a little story there. It began on PlayStation 2 development kits, did it not? It absolutely did. In fact, um, it is something we, we talk about as... Um, new and groundbreaking um the reality is we didn't want to lose our jobs uh and so the game we were working on that got cancelled which was the getaway online yeah. we quickly mustered together a proposition for how we could turn that into an so um it was uh born out of necessity for money to feed our families uh wow station home um and essentially it, it is um the online elements of the uh, Getaway Online's community. Uh, and the Getaway Online was this um, vision of being able to go out into an open world city with other players. You'd go to these hubs, you'd play mini games together, you'd plan heists, then you'd go out into the open world again and, and do these heists. A PlayStation um, 2 broadband adapter game. Yes. Yep. I tell you what, the boys at Team London, aka Team Soho, they had ambitions that were stratospheric, sir. I can't even begin to. The best we got was what? SOCOM? And you had envisaged something there that would be unparalleled even into the PS3 era. Bold. Yep. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, the, the uh, adapter didn't sell too well. No. Uh, and Sony's uh, online service wasn't too good. Um, so that that saw uh, the brakes pulled on that. But we very quickly put together a demo where you started off in the city and you could drive your car and then you drove through a, um, a 
as forest, I think. Mm-hmm. And then you got to a boat and you could get on the boat and you could go to a desert island. And on that desert island, there was like uh, a guy dressed up as an American football player dancing. Um, <laughs> and we had uh, another, but basically we'd created this. We wanted to show that we could create a hub uh, a, a social hub for for gamers in 3d and so we went in and we showed people what they were expecting which was like a, a london pub in uh london uh and then we took them on this journey where we went through this city changing into uh, a desert island eventually and all the way through it uh you had um different people dressed up in different costumes we had a red indian i think at one point we almost had village people um on on the on this beach um and then from there you went off and you did a um a personal apartment so you went into a personal apartment and you could decorate it and you could put down a tv and put down furniture and you could customize your character um and the sales pitch was hey we want to build a virtual online community um for the playstation 3 um it didn't get any traction (laughs) to start with uh and and we were humored we were uh we were like okay well you're a small team of like 10 guys uh we'll give you a playstation 3 development kit see what you can do we were we were the last team in sony to get a playstation development kit i used to go down into the base i used to go down to the basement and uh get old keyboards and try put them together because uh we needed keyboards for typing uh text chat um so we didn't have enough keyboards so i'd go down to the rubbish bin and put keyboards together so that we could uh do this text chat stuff um and we got to a point where we had a demo uh, where we could show off this online community. You could join, um, you could chat to people, you could go off and play mini games. Um, and from that point, we then put together a business case of, um, look, what we want to do is make this community, but then sell items to people and be able to launch into, into games. So this is a, a hub where people came to. And that's, in fact, what we called it to start off with. It was PlayStation Hub. Um, mm. We took that over to Japan and Phil Harrison um, was pretty much the guy who helped uh, uh, me and uh, the uh, lead artist and the art director, uh, uh, the engineer um, director, uh, get the game off the ground because he took it over um, and he sold it into Japan. Um, wow. And they were they were super excited uh, by it because uh, at the time the head of Sony was in love with the Matrix and he wanted to create the Matrix uh, where people had these virtual lives they lived out in, on the console. Um, and for him, PlayStation Home was this: dress up, become who you want, um, and, and go live in the console. Um, and it was it was awesome you know there was a lot of things that came out of playstation home that people don't realize like the friends list was only ever going to be 50 players um that you could be on your friends list because sony were like well who knows more than 50 people playstation home within its first week people were making friends with each other and so suddenly they were like we have to change this um we had voice comms and actually the day we went live with uh, the beta of PlayStation Home, it brought down the whole of PlayStation 3's network because people were using voice comms to chat yeah. uh, and it was too much for, for the system. So off of that, uh, Sony built a better infrastructure to cope for with voice comms. Um, Unbelievable. So there's a lot that, that PlayStation Home brought uh, in there, like a lot of uh, microtransactions, being able to buy um, uh, 
micro games all that came from playstation home uh it was it was just one of those it was a great it was a great service to to build on we aimed at first for hardcore gamers but it actually came a, a service for secondary gamers people that didn't necessarily play lots of games so you know one of the big features that i'd come up with early on was you could launch into brand new games or launch into other games from playstation home uh that failed <laughs> miserably. Right. Um, um, very few people did that. Uh, but what we did find is the community aspect of it, people loved. Um, you know, we had a whole community of people where they were service people uh, in the US Army, and it was their families who would meet up on PlayStation Home to, you know, um, to socialize, um, wow. to, you know, to, to share in, um, the anxiety they had about their loved ones being overseas, uh, in the military. Uh, and so we had, you know, lots of different groups coming up on PlayStation home. Uh, and it, it really did become a, an online community. It didn't become the hard, uh, hardcore gamers online community. Um, uh, but it was a community for, for PlayStation, um, users there. We even had a community of 30 plus, old gentlemen who liked dressing up in French maids outfits uh, and doing synchronized dancing. Um, and I think this got, <laughs> this got so popular that there were two or three gangs of 30 year old men dressing up in French maids outfits um having dance offs and they they were perfectly synchronized. They'd got all these oh dance moves down. That's incredible. Yeah. So um, now I um the console I play I've got a PS5 uh, uh luckily Bobby and I both secured PlayStation 5s on launch um mine's barely been turned on I've played through Spider-Man and some other of the games that I wanted to play but I keep coming back to the PS3 now as part of this you'll see where I'm going with this I recently thought do you know what I don't think I've seen every Sony E3 from 2005, which was basically the announcement the PlayStation 3 was coming through until the PlayStation 3 was discontinued and the E3 was mainly about PS4. One of the things that stuck out to me was that in their inclusion of PlayStation Home, they built a replica of their E3 stands that you could visit in Home. Now, were you involved in that? And if so, what did you get? The tech sheets that they sent the designers to build the MDF out of for the show floor, and then you create a digital version? Yep. So um, uh, events were myself and another designer's idea uh, of how we could get things happening in PlayStation Home. Um, that was you. To, to, yeah. To start off with, Beautiful. we we built it around uh, a movie cinema, uh, a, a movie theater. Um, and we would have events in there. So we had like a ratchet and clank launch trailer event. Um, so that was the start of it. And then we wanted to do E3. And I think the first E3 environment we built wasn't a replica of E3. It was, uh, an imagination where we had all the things that were being announced at E3 unlocking, uh, as the days went on. Yeah. Um, and eventually it became a, a mapping of E3, but it was exactly that they would build up, um, what the stage would be. And then two documents would go off. One would come to our team, uh, and one would go off to, um, the team at E3 to build it. Um, by this point I was running the development team, uh, on PlayStation home. Um, 
and um, we had teams across the world making content for us. Uh, so I was up almost 24 hours because I had uh, the greater East, Eastern Territory teams like Japan and Korea. Um, I had the US online and I'd just be awake with my phone with the, you know, different feature requests or problems they'd have constantly. So it was, it was a tiring time, but that, that uh, having E3 in PlayStation home would always see a bump um, because it was, it, it was almost better than just watching it in um, on IGN at the time or GameSpot. You could go in there, chat with people, um, watch the events going live, but also kind of get to see what E3 was like. That's a, you know, awesome. again, I could have a whole, we could do a whole show where we just discuss that era of PlayStation, uh, probably much to the annoyance of the Xbox listeners. But we try, we're, we're going to get to a section where we include those. But Mike, we'd love to have you back on because these details that you just sort of throw out carte blanche, uh, I'm sure ourselves and our listeners are like, oh, I'd love to know more about that. Or, I wish you could deep dive you know, who was first, the NDF version or Mike's version to uh, of the E3 stand? Or, you know, we know that you've been backstage at E3 um, during the infamous Ridge Racer comment for the PSP and, and other events. So I would, again, you know, time willing, and if you actually survive this first encounter <laughs> with the unofficial controller podcast and, and don't run a mile, uh, we would love to have you back on to maybe deep dive some of these things a little bit more. But we're trying to cover a, a great wealth of uh, gaming accolades, sir, if I may be so bold. Now, this is where Bobby's going to probably cover himself in Vaseline and lose himself. But PlayStation <laughs> trophies, this yes. is also an accolade that can be attributed to you directly, or is this just uh, from a graphic design point of view? Tell us the story there. So um, we were looking at doing uh, something called 3D trophies in PlayStation Home. Uh, and basically is uh, the idea we had, um, and I've forgotten who, I don't, I've forgotten where the idea came from, but essentially you could collect 3D objects from doing things in home. Mm. Um, then the Xbox 360 was launched with its achievement system. Uh, and we were like, oh, this is this is good. Maybe we could do something along the lines of the achievements. Uh, and so um, Phil Harrison asked one of the designers um, who was um, under my stewardship um, to, to come up with a design. Uh, and basically what came back, uh, what hit my plate was this uh, document. It was, it was very well done, but it was just the achievement system uh, and how we would copy that system. Mm-hmm. Um, being a gamer my whole life, I looked at this and I was like, like, I really enjoy the achievement system, but I really hate aspects of it. And it doesn't, doesn't fit with what I would want. Um, and so, you know, not to, to take away what the designer had done, which was a fantastic job done a, a, a guy named Brad done a fantastic job with that initial design. Um, I went away and put together a proposal of what I thought a system would be. And I called it the trophy system. And what I wanted to do was to create a system where people could not just look at a score and see how good a gamer was or um, if they had the same interests as you, but you could look at it and go, wow, this person's got 50 trophies, but they're all bronze. So they're more of a casual gamer Um, Ah. or they've got all golds. So they're a uh, more of a hardcore gamer. Um, And so I wanted to build a system that had a ton of granularity in there. 
Um, my initial design also had in there that you could get trophies for trophies. So there were milestone trophies that you could get. Oh, um, wow. So if you hit 100 golds, there'd be a trophy for that. Um, if you were the first person in a game to get a trophy, there was a trophy for that. Uh, and so my original design had this uh, huge network of, of ways where you could show your passion for games through the trophy system. Uh, you could follow certain trophy um, winners and see how they were doing, uh, and they could um, give you advice uh, on how they were doing, just like, this is how I did this trophy. Um, so that went off to Phil Harrison. He loved the idea. It went off to Japan. And then um, Phil was over in Japan and he was asking me for revisions on on my presentation. So I did that. He was like, can you send me what it would look like? I went online and I got some trophies and I redrew them. Um, oh, and, wow. <laughs> and, 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 and kind of sent that over to him. Um, and they're very similar to the trophies that we, we have now in the system. Um, and they really liked it. And uh, they lapped that up. Um, at this point, the uh, platinum trophy didn't exist. Um, mm. And it went off to the RHQs, our regional headquarters teams in each each location. Um, and they were asked for feedback on it. Uh, the only feedback we really got um, was um, that they wanted a new trophy, which was once you got all of the trophies, um, you would get this new trophy. And they called it the Grand Slam Trophy. Um, <laughs> ah. It was an idea that came from the States. Um, and um, we were a bit mm, about this. Um, at this point, we got approval for it. So I was like, brilliant. I've come up with this system. I handed this off to another talented designer called Eamon. Um, and he would design all the metrics behind how you would get these trophies. Uh, and he came and he saw this um grand slam trophy and i think he had an allergic reaction to it uh, <laughs> and he's like why doesn't it just stay with the 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 the, the narrative theme that i uh, that mike's created uh why is it not a platinum trophy uh and so he came up with the idea for um naming it platinum platinum trophies um and then after that it it, it was um it was done it dusted and we we rolled it out um you know, one of the things I was hoping that trophies would do is that it would build a community. Uh, obviously, I'd just done PlayStation Home, and so a community of um, people would be built around this. Um, and I also wanted it as a way for games developers to add little rewards as people were playing games. Mm. Um, and that's the whole idea of the trophy system of... Uh, if if you do something in the game that you'd expected to do, you get a bronze one. So whilst you haven't finished the game and got that instant gratification, yeah. getting a bronze trophy gave you a little little bump, a little high of, yeah, I got a, a trophy. Um, the gold ones were then, okay, I've done something that is very hard to do in the game. And so you would be rewarded for that. Not just the rewards you feel for doing it, but having this kind of thing come up on screen saying, you're recognized as being someone that's done something um, that is hard to do. Um, and, and, you know, the hope was that games could add these mini rewards um, that keep people engaged with, with the, the game that they were playing. Yeah, I think one of the takeaways for me of, of trophies is the fact that back in the day, you could blitz through a game, uh, PS2 era, and not see everything. You know, mm. you didn't see the texture underneath the wheelie bin in the back of the alley in Getaway because you weren't particularly interested in looking there. 
but within the game narrative and other bits and bobs and when you revisit on New Games Plus, trophies are a great way of getting you to see of a developer to say, come and have a look at this. You know, we spent hours on this mechanic, mm-hmm. almost get bored senseless of it, but for your reward, here's a gold trophy. And I I think that, and uh, Xbox achievements in the same way have allowed developers to really uh, draw attention to, you know, we are actually quite proud of this or we think you'll enjoy this subsystem. So, and, and then more to your point of creating a, a community, obviously, <laughs> My co-host here, he he loves it. He's in constant communication with people about platinums. I think you know his eyes were like saucers when you said that the first X Y Z or you get to eighty trophies, you get another trophy, and that's an elite trophy for the elite of the elite of the elite. Um, he's probably going to go to bed tonight dreaming of what would have been possible if that had actually been stitched into the very framework of the uh, of the system. Right, but yeah. once again, uh, you're a very humble man because. Every story you tell us just bumps you up. You're like two blame Miyamoto right now for me. Uh, some of the <laughs> things that you've been involved in. You are very humble. Uh, you know, <laughs> these things are, um, they really are accolades. And in, in 30, 40, 50 years time, people will look back and say, oh, PlayStation, they, you know, they copied Microsoft and whatever. But you know, there are other there are other elements to it. And to actually be the person on the ground with a pencil in his hand that was responsible in in any way for the creation of trophies and in a big way that you were and PlayStation Home, which I don't think, I think you do recognize that PlayStation Home was big and it existed within its own bubble at the time. And as time moves on, it will be forgotten. But I don't think PlayStation forget because on um, PlayStation 5, obviously Astro Bot um, is the included packing game, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And obviously when you get, your PlayStation 5, I implore you to play it because for you, I almost demand a video uh, of this um, because for you, it will be a a pure trip down memory lane with the peripherals. And there's a a little PlayStation home icon that actually unlocks a trophy as you walk through the actual outline of the logo. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Yes. Mm -hmm. And trophies are very much um, kind of championed within that as well. So they've kind of been laid down within the law the franchise and I think you know guilty by association sir from may be so bold uh, I think you should be suitably proud mm-hmm. um from that suitably proud puffed out chest moment um I mean you're probably equally as proud of this but singstar beckoned it was a, yes. a shift up uh really you became quite heavily involved in the creation of this in the the UI one would imagine and just to sort of put some parenthesis on there before we let the leash off of you and you tell us all about SingStar, Sony made money from SingStar that bolstered the PlayStation exclusives that were developed in and around that time. I think we're a little bit out of sync because obviously SingStar was on PS2 as well, but if you could just elaborate on that as best you can, sir. Yeah, so... Um... SingStar was also made in in London studio. It was, uh, I think it was the floor below, uh, no, it was the floor above PlayStation, uh, PlayStation Home. Um, PlayStation Home was getting huge um, and SingStar were looking at building out a community on the PlayStation 3 and they were looking for someone to help lead that. Um, And 
so I decided that that point, uh, you know, PlayStation was out, uh, home was out. I'd seen it through multiple updates now, um, and I wanted an opportunity to to do other things and learn new things. And SingStar um, was a powerhouse on the PS2 and looked like it was going to be a powerhouse on the PS3. So there's a lot I wanted to learn from that, um, and. With it being London studio, uh, you're not really leaving because you all meet up at lunchtime as you go up in the lift. So yeah. you, you never left anything really behind. So I joined uh, SingStar as it was going on to PlayStation 3. Um, made a lot of changes on that. Um, some of the biggest ones were they had two products uh, that were lingering called PlayStation Dance and PlayStation Guitar. Um and I really wanted to push those games out, not because I thought they'd be great, but I thought as a team, we could learn something from it and, and build out different products based on, on the SingStar license. Um, for the most part, it was an awesome group of people that loved music, uh, that loved a gaming community. Um, and so a lot of it was um, improving the features that we had um, and um looking at how we could take uh, SingStar in new directions. Um, and from that, um, myself and um, the the game director at the time, we had a chat and we thought we could bring to bear some of the experience at PlayStation Home uh, and we would build out um, SingStar online uh, mm. where you could also get SingStar directly downloaded already to your PS3. So all PS3s would have SingStar just like PlayStation Home. Yes. Um, so I, I didn't oversee that in the end because I went on to another project which we might talk about, but um, we, we, we set off an, another producer working on that. Um, but before that, we released SingStar Guitar and SingStar uh, Dance, as well as a ton of other SingStars. Uh, it was almost like a, a, a conveyor belt of, of SingStars that were, sure, were coming off. I, I did a picture this week for the Instagram and I opened one of the, I've got some, I've got drawers, rammels stuff as, as much as you have. Uh, uh, probably well, not as much as you have, but certain games, I'll pull open a drawer and it'll just spring out SingStar everywhere. And I'm like, yeah. I, I, like, you know, I see one, I have to pick it up. They're normally you know, 25, 50p. So you end up with like everything. I've even got SingStar take that, would you believe? Uh, I don't Guilty know. Pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. But the, <laughs> all this... A tap that's accumulated in my drawer ultimately when it was first sold at retail this ended up really generating a lot of cash income and you've got a wonderful story about what happened to that cash income Mike. yeah so um singstar was huge in europe uh you know europeans like getting in front of a, a tv and making idiots of themselves uh, <laughs> and, and laughing about it um it did okay in the states but the states was more aspirational when it came to that kind of stuff um it was you know the audience there wanted um you know people were interested in building careers out of this wow. um and using that as a you know hey i want to be a professional singer this this can help me um which meant it didn't sell that well in in the states but in europe it it helped it become i think one of the first billion dollar selling games. Uh, and what happens with, with this money for um, Sony is they reinvest that into other games. Um, and so when you look, you know, it got a lot of flaxing stuff from the hardcore gamer community, but what a lot of them don't really realize is that when they're playing um, games like God of War um, or Uncharted um, or Jack and Dexter, 
um, a large amount at that time of money was coming from um, SingStar. Um, now that we had other big hits out there, we had Gran Turismo, but you know, Polyphony keep all that money. They, they kind of need it for their licensing and stuff. Yeah. But with SingStar, you know, the costs of developing the game, um, were insignificant to the amount of revenue it was generating. Um, and so, yeah, a large amount of this, some of it probably even made its way into research and development. Um, and it really helped, uh, Sony propel itself uh, with its its first party IPs, which you know it's known for now. When you compare it to something like Xbox uh, Studios, who shrunk then grow then shrunk then grow again, um, PlayStation being consistent and, and their first party studios regularly put out now massive hits. Mm. Um, and I I mean personally, I really think that if SingStar hadn't been around, that Sony wouldn't have had the um, cash available for them to be able to invest in some of the biggest ips that we have today again this <laughs> to you just a just a mere anecdote to our listeners and to us uh fascinating insight into the industry um with that being said couple of uh questions bobby uh out the post bag who's next oh get, get your clapping hands ready it's a new, new listener, listener. Yes, sir. It's uh, deep underscore C underscore doodles. Uh, just got flashbacks from singing Toxic by Britney Spears on SingStar when I was like nine or 10 at my birthday party. I think that was one of the very few games, if not the only game, where the more terrible you are, the more fun multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, looks like we've got uh, the Italian Stallions back in the seat. It's... Uh, but being still retro gaming, first time I disappointed. I don't see a Sting Star Motown in this photo, George. I re- I, re- I refer to your Instagram page, and my question is: How easy is it to get a license from a music producer, artist, or record companies? And so, and did he ever get to meet any of the musicians? Uh, everybody stand for the Italian national anthem, sir. Everybody sit down. Controller emoji, sir, and trophy emoji, sir. <laughs> so <laughs> Mike's like oh my god uh, did you ever get to meet or oh, how hard was it or easy was it to get the licenses was everyone up for it and then secondly did you get to meet any of the music businesses heavy hitters um, so no we never got to meet the uh, music industry uh, no Simon Cowell wow. pitched to him um pitched um uh was it britain's got talent thing to him maybe yeah um so we pitched to him um what's he like just as a quick insight what was he like as a business engagement he just smokes just like a chimney yeah walk into his office and he was just puffing away chain smoking uh, wow. It was, you know, someone with severe asthma. I was sitting there going, <laughs> um, so uh, it wasn't the most pleasant time of my life. Um, no. But um, yeah, we didn't really get to meet people because it, it's all about money at that point. Um, and what, what happens in licensing is they say, we want an advance. So you don't necessarily pay them for every copy uh, of game that's sold. You pay them advance. So we say, look, we think this is going to sell about... Um, 10,000 copies so we'll give you x amount for that many sales uh, and if it sells more than that brilliant uh, if it sells less than that oh dear um, so that's that's generally how that licensing works there is is you go off and you ask people 
nine times out of 10, they will be happy to take your money. Um, but there are some artists like Usher. Um, he would only license one song to any one game at a time. You couldn't have multiples. Um, we managed to get around that in uh, a game we made called Dance Star, uh, where I think we got three of his songs on there. Um, and so you have some peculiar um, uh, things that may come from artists, like they want don't want to be depicted in certain ways, or um, they don't want to be on a disc with another artist. Oh, wow. uh, so you know that that would be a more common one where you'd have artists that didn't want to be on soundtracks with other ones. Uh, sometimes it was an actual rivalry, uh, and sometimes it would be the um, music licensor who uh, you know didn't see a strategic advantage on having those two artists on the same disc hmm. interesting so the italian stunning actually posed a good question there so apologies yeah. for the lack of the motown i would say from the success of singstar your career moved on um within sony one last time um from what we can work out to another peripheral mm-hmm. based on sony's move the camera and an exciting innovation called wonderbook now, as I referred to at the start of the show uh, or earlier in the in the feature, um, I've watched all of the Sony E3s, and there was a, a moment where Harry Potter Book of Spells was showcased on stage live. <laughs> Incredibly brave, and at points, a little bit broken, if I may be so bold, Mike. Were you heart in mouth, first of all, question about that, as this was happening? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh yes. I was in the I was in the crowd for that one because right. uh, all the E3s that I've done, I'm always backstage uh, and I never get to to go to E3. In fact, I still haven't walked around E3 ever. Um, but uh, yeah, I was in the crowd and Tara, who was um, uh, running art at London Studio at that time, was uh, where it happened. Um, and essentially what was happening was there was a floodlight that someone hadn't switched off shining onto the move controller, which uh, obviously the move works on seeing where the light is. Um, yes. So the camera couldn't pick this up. And I was like, oh God, someone switch off that light, switch off that light, switch off that And uh, you know, foul language followed underneath my breath yeah. as, uh, <laughs> as she was, uh, eventually, um, they didn't switch off the light, but the, the camera managed to pick it up and, and she worked her way through it. But, um, yeah, it was a nerve wracking time. You know, at Sony, we had a mandate to make sure we did live demos, especially after we'd done our first, um, PlayStation three E3, where we showed video concepts, but didn't really tell people they were video concepts. Um, you know, there was a big backlash off of that. And so, you know, it, for us as Sony, it was really important that we showed, um, actual footage, uh, and people actually playing the game. If you look at all those E3s, always someone out on stage, always yeah. someone playing it. Uh, and that was a direct result of that. that for, for some of our younger listeners, um, you refer to the sort of infamous, I think it was 2006 E3 where Killzone and Motorstorm, Motorstorm. came out and looked unbelievable, uh, to say the least. And, you know, the, the, no one really knew what the P- PS3 was going to be capable of at that time. So obviously when Sony put something like that out, 
there's the thought that, my God, this cell CPU actually has got some grunt. If that's, is that, I don't think it was fooling many people at the time, but obviously they fell foul of it. Fair play to um, Gorilla, I believe it is, because that kill zone experience was almost, almost replicated in game. Yep. And, and fair play to, um, is it Avalanche from memory serves? No, it wasn't. But um, the MotorStorm boys, because there are sections within the first MotorStorm where it's very bland textures, but there are moments where you'll deep in the actual ruts and valleys in the first person mode. And that is not far away from the tone poem, as I want to call it, that we saw in E3. So although it never quite got to those lofty heights, pretty close, but there gumption or sony's gumption at the time to display these videos put a basically iron spike up your back and forced you to demo wonderbook yes <laughs> live on stage live, live on stage it you know that was probably my f- most favorite e3 as well um it it and it was my most favorite because um i did a lot of demoing uh 24 7 up early leaving late demoing the game to buyers to press um and something that they do at E3, which I had no idea about, and I don't think many people do know about, is that Nintendo and Sony um, do tours of each other's um, booths. Um, so they, they've done a deal, basically, where um, uh, Miyamoto um, will walk around and he'll get presented the games that Sony are demoing, and whoever is in charge at Sony at the time will, will get the same uh, in wow. the Nintendo booths. Um, and I was demoing with a good friend of mine, a great friend of mine. He's, uh, been a, a colleague and my art director, um, for my entire time at Sony and Microsoft. Um, and we were both there, uh, on, uh, Wonderbook, uh, me as the dev director, him as the, um, art director. Um, and I just, I think demoed to mums of America, uh, the game, and I was just resetting everything up again. And he tapped me on the back. He said, Mike, you, you, you might want to do this one. I was like, Oh, come on, John. Uh, who is it? And then Miyamoto sat down. I was like, Oh, Miyamoto son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a massive, 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 massive fan of, of, of Zelda and all of that he's, he's done. Um, and he sat down and I took him through, the game that uh, I, I was making, you know, getting, and it was one of the most amazing things of my career is being able to, to demo that to, to me, something I'd never thought I'd do, get that to demo that. Um, and then in the afternoon, Reggie came along um, wow. and uh, demoed it to Reggie. So um, it was an awesome E3 just, just because of those two events. That happened. How was his reaction, Miyamoto-san? Because uh, I don't think he's a native English speaker. Everything, I think time I've seen him, it's three translations. So, did he have to articulate to you through a translator or did he just nod and smile as you wafted the digital wand around? So he is, um, I think he's pretty fluent, but the thing is with about Japanese is they, they uh, don't want to look foolish uh, or stupid and get wrong pronunciation. So he had a translator with them, but he, he heard everything. I, he understood everything I was saying. Um, he was really excited um, by uh, what we did with, with Wonderbook um, and how intuitive it was. You know, I, I told him the story of when I brought Wonderbook home and I put it in front of my two-year-old daughter. She could instantly play it because it involved turning pages. Uh, and it's one of the most simplest interactions we have as humans is books uh, and being able to turn a page. Um, so, um, yeah, 
considering the kind of games he's, he likes making, I think the idea caught his imagination. Um, you know, I showed him the dragon kind of climbing on the page and then flying out into the world and us seeing, seeing that. Um, I think he really liked that. Um, and I like to think it is probably completely untrue, but I like to think that that Mario live cart game was uh, inspired all those years ago by, uh, by Wonderbook. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, Mike. Let's say that's <laughs> yeah. what exactly what happened. They just couldn't exactly work out how to happened. do it. Yeah. Um, so just just to to set it straight in the chronology, was it somewhere within Sony they came to you with this book and said, what do you think to this? Or was it something that generated out of Team London where you said, actually, do you know what? The camera could work with this if we have like almost these barcode references. What, what kept chicken or egg story really, Mike? What came first? So um, we had a, an R&T team in London. Uh, and London has what the main R and D team, um, for, um, the shared development kit that Sony uses. Uh, and one of the things they were working on was camera tracking. Mm. Um, and so the team had already been in place for about two years, but it was going nowhere. Um, uh, and we, you know, they couldn't figure out what to do with this, how to structure it, how to make it work. Um, the tech was making advancements, but the game team weren't. Um, and so actually, uh, myself and the game director on um, SingStar, because we constantly delivered for this studio. You know, I'd, I'd done um, uh, PlayStation Home, Trophies, SingStar. We'd, we'd built up this reputation as of being able to bring uh, games to market. And so we were brought in to essentially uh, bring these games to market. Uh, and we made some big changes. You know, one of the big changes I made was um, the boss fights the end of level fights weren't very well structured and, and so actually i took adapted something from um tv and i said i want us to wrap a prototype and i want us to do storyboards because this game can be storyboarded and so we actually designed the game through storyboards rather than through documents right. um which was great because we could then hand that off to jk uh, and her representatives and they could really understand what it is we were trying to create but the tech came first then the game and the game then languished was was about to be cancelled um and then we came along i had to do a business plan and uh, i came back with a proposition for um uh, multiple games to be made by different people uh they really bought into that and there was this whole idea that there'd be an online um bookstore as well where you could mm. download new books um so i was the um, development director and the franchise director looking after all these uh, different games and then I also was a game director on a game that uh, got cancelled unfortunately uh, for Wonderbook which was called Storyteller uh, and what Storyteller was is it used AI um, to allow children and people to create their own stories and so what you would do mm. is you would put down a character and you could control this character on the book and you could see them running around um, you could then put down a tree uh, and the code would know that a tree's there so you'd bump into the tree but you could then put down an axe and if you put down the axe you could say right i want my character to go over to the axe pick up the axe and then chop down the tree um and you could record this so you could tell your own stories and so it was like um a little bit like a little big planet but for for wonderbook that was what uh, i was gonna say i mean that sounds that sounds really cool that got canned though probably because that, that, that got canned sadly i've my kids as you described um, your daughter's experience with Wonderbook, thoroughly enjoyed their Harry Potter fans, obviously, and, and they thoroughly enjoyed their experience playing through the first two. Correct me if I misheard you. The only one I haven't played, by the way, is Walking with Dinosaurs. But you were you were a, a director on the other 
four of the four wonder books that were released you were sort of on the periphery because i must say yeah. that um big's nightcrawler is the hidden gem of the wonder book franchise and you know to me that harry potter's all well and good and it, it's got the franchise to leverage off and there are some interesting experiences i like the way that it kind of transposes the image of you back it can actually scale it back perspective-wise and make it actually work quite well when you go into the tests for the spells, which I've always found quite interesting. And if you get the room lit right, it works flawlessly every time. If you haven't yeah. got quite the light writing, sometimes there's some some of those sort of motion control issues creep in. But Diggs Nightcrawler, my goodness gracious me, what a great little experience that is. And the way it kind of, moves around its environments they thoroughly enjoyed watching that one and i you know i climbed down on the sofa from the sofa and had involvement in that too yeah. were you was that just sort of you looking over and going yeah making a good game there or were you more sort of directly involved with that one so um that was made in london studio as well um and for me i was um a lot more on the business side of things and then reviewing the game as it was being done so what we did there is we approached a couple of creatives that had set up their own studio. They'd come from Pixar and they'd mm -hmm. had a, a successful um, game before that on iOS. Um, and we wanted to bring that narrative strength they had and pair it with the technical strength that we had in the studio. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's where that was born. But off of that, there was a whole idea of different books that would come from Dig's Nightcrawler. And that's a lot of what I was mapping out was, hey, you, this is where the online store comes in. And there's a whole universe that Dig's Nightcrawler um, is involved in. And you can go to this hub where you would see all these books and you could choose a new book to read and oh, you could put that down and you could play this. that. Um, but, you know, there's the problem with with wonder book with this that is is very hard to make games with augmented reality um you know there's i think to this day wonder book is still probably the biggest uh and it's just hard to engage with it's more novelty like and that's why you see with microsoft's hololens it hasn't been really used for games because it's it's not engaging enough um when you look at uh, pokemon go um yeah. where they're augmented you don't really care that it's augmented in the no. world. You, you want to do the battles and you move around, right? And, well, and a lot of people mistook that augmented reality as the key thing where it really wasn't. To, to that end, we had a question from, um, I think, Sean, you've had some interaction with uh, through social media space, Retro Gamer Thomas. He said, when working on Wonderbook, is it much different working on a game of motion controllers than a standard game with a controller? I think you've covered some of this off. Uh, and again, with this one, I'd imagine it's quite difficult uh, we're developing a game that uses a camera to project an image. And you kind of alluded to it there. As you say, these AR games, they look great on paper. And, and I'm sure in tech demos and bits and bobs, they are amazing. And your first playthrough, especially at the time when they first released, these were hot. Yeah. Um, but it didn't just find the traction in the marketplace, sadly. Do you think there's a, other than the reasons you just gave, is there anything else that kind of held these titles back? Yeah, I mean, the, the, and we discussed this while we were developing the game. The barrier to entry was huge on those games. Um, you know, usually the barrier to entry is um, money and the console. Um, if I've got money in the console, I can play the game. 
with this, you needed the PlayStation camera. Uh, you needed the PlayStation move control. You needed the game and you needed the console. Um, and you had to be a fan of the series. Um, yes. So there was a huge barrier to entry for some people. You know, there's a lot of Potter fans out there that would be like, I would love to have this. Um, what do I need? You need this, 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 this. And it was just too much um, for for people to kind of um, to, to get into. So that was definitely one barrier to entry. And then the other one is just making augmented reality experiences. Um, you know, playing VR once, it's full immersion playing augmented re- reality ones it's it's kind of more gimmick i think mm-hmm. um, than anything else and we found it very hard to design for uh the these games you know we came up with we ended up relying on the book uh more than the augmented reality to do cool things like digs nightcrawler where you fold over the book so the lamppost goes to the window so you can climb up the lamppost to get into the window um you know we used mechanics like that so we were using the less the augmented reality and more the peripheral that we were creating the augmented reality on to, to mm. create these game experiences. So a mixture of those two things um, made it very challenging. And I think is the reason why you don't see the market flooded with augmented reality games. It was a strange time in the industry because obviously the success of the Wii had been just tear away. And instead yep. of thinking, what can we do that's our thing? Um, the the mindset of the development, the the companies at the time was we need a slice of that pie. Um, not necessarily always the best um, thing. I think Phil no. Spencer came out this, this last week in an interview and said, I could never have made the Wii. And sadly it was a sad time for Microsoft where they felt compelled to copy and, and try and grab a slice of that. That market had already been absorbed by the Wii. So technically it was a dead yep. market. Um, some of the innovations that came out of it were were fascinating and the move yep. controllers obviously still survive to this day bizarrely on a system that we I mean, technically using move controls on a playstation 5 for playstation yes. vr and yeah. you know that boggles the mind that they're still part of it um comment from... I, have a, I have an interesting story just to finish off on that oh, if, you're, okay. if you want yes please so um you know the move controller button is like a, a an a with a tick at the end of it yes that is because the controller up until about three weeks before launch was called Apex. Really? Uh, and um, it wasn't until uh, a few of us in London studio pointed out to Phil Harrison uh, that Apex was actually a line of controllers that Microsoft had. Um, and that there may be some issues. And so it was very last minute changed from um, Apex to move controller and that's but they couldn't change the logo because that uh that uh, had already been printed on all the boxes and all the controllers and so what you're actually seeing there is the original name and the original logo for the name on the move controller so they kind of like <laughs> roughly changed that symbol to be the move symbol as it's referred to in the ui of the games yep <laughs> even though it has bears no wow that's Again, we could pick up these anecdotes all day long. Um, before we finish, um, we know him as Young Adult Man. Uh, Bobby, what's his username? One.gd30ce12. He says, I never played a book of spells games. I might have read my grandma's, but never played the game with a laughing out loud emoji. 
you know, young adult man, he comes out with some of the strangest comments. Normally it's Ginger's games room. Um, but this week he had a relatively sensible one. Now with all this talk of AR and, you know, developing different bits and bobs, it was at this point, you took a break from Sony uh, and your chance to run your own studio as a director. You also had some involvement with their, one would imagine this is off the back of Wonderbook potentially, but you also had some involvement with HoloLens. Mm -hmm. Uh, And while at Microsoft, you were given the chance to become director of your own studio, which is called Studio Lift. And you were involved in the game Eden Falls. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, first of all, how did Sony react when you said that you were upstixing and go into Microsoft and and what was the mindset behind that? And then maybe if we can, we'll just dig deep on a couple of those um, nuances, really. Yep. So there was shock from Sony. Um, I'd been at the company for 12 years mm-hmm. um, and I actually um, handed in my reg- resignation um, just before the books of spells finished. So it was going into QA, final QA phase, and that's when I handed in my resignation. Um, and what had happened is six months prior to that, Phil Harrison had got his job in Microsoft and he asked me if I wanted to come to Microsoft and do something. Um, and he said, you know, what would you do? And I said, I'd want to set up a new studio. Um, and you know, I spent six months then, um, feeling terribly guilty working at Sony, uh, but you know, talking to the enemy, um, Mm -hmm. about setting up a, a new studio. Um, but there, I think it was genuine shock. I didn't even have a leaving interview. You're supposed to have a leaving interview. Uh, there was no leaving interview for me. It was just kind of, this is it, you're out. Um, but it was amazing. You know, 12 years, I got this special plaque that the uh, team had put together of all the games that I'd worked on. Um, mm. You know, I had the trophies on there. Um, I was a massive fan of Little Big Planet. So the um, Media Modicle team had sent me um, a load of figures that were never released uh, for um, Little Big Planet. Uh, you know, I got a Kratos, um, sack boy and, um, uh, all that kind of stuff. How were you sleeping um, at night with all this <laughs> premium gaming tat or, or accolades to your career? And obviously these people at these different studios knew you so intimately that yeah. they knew the gifts to give you that would really tickle your fancy for want of a better word. I it was, it was really hard. My mum said to me, she said, aren't you betraying Sony? I was like, thanks, mum. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but it's, you know, I was, I had to take a hard look at it. Sony had been fantastic. It's where I'd started my career. Yeah. Um, and um, the reality is, is that I was probably looking at another five, ten years before I could get to studio um, director at, at Sony um you know there's it's a very hierarchical company and you have to move through the hierarchy yeah um i was still relatively young at this point um and to be offered um to be a studio director uh in my early 30s i think probably would have made me the youngest studio director of a big um triple a publisher in in the uk um so i couldn't pass off that learning opportunity i had no doubt that i would be um fair to middling at it having never done it before but i knew i'd built teams uh and could could make games and build products so um i just you know it was sad and stressful because of the sony um 
relationship I had, but at the same time, it was exciting because I was going to be doing something very different and culturally different, moving from a Japanese company. Uh, and, you know, culturally, I love Japan uh, and moving to uh, a US company, which, you know, uh, was very excited. You know, that there's a more challenge based culture with a, a U- US based company. Uh, yes. So very excited about that. So you get there. Um, HoloLens, there's a, an interesting Google Glass type uh, makeup by Microsoft. What you, you step through the door thinking you're going to be, you know, working on video games and you get pulled off to HoloLens. What, what was your involvement in that? So um, we had to sit down and look at the strategy for um, what we were going to build. Um, and, you know, the... Initially, the primary goal was for the team to make HoloLens gaming experiences. Ah, yes. Um, but the te- technology was still in its infancy. Uh, and so we came up with another strategy. We actually built three strategies uh, in the studio. Um, and it, it's not all just me. You know, there's a group There's a group of talented people that help do this, with, as with any game. Um, and we built three strategies. One was a gaming arm. One was HoloLens. And the other one was new technologies. Um, so we created, uh, so I, I headed up most of this, but I, I sat quite heavily on the gaming side of things. That's, that's where I was most passionate about. Yeah. Um, and we used games as a vessel for all three of these, these key strategies. Now the HoloLens strategy, um, was waning quite a bit. We did do work on it. We did, uh, we did a Minecraft thing. Um, uh, yeah, I've seen this, um, that that so that wasn't the Minecraft demo that they showed. Unfortunately, we, ah. we did some initial technology to prove it could work. But um, what we did do is that we built um, some technology that did make it into Minecraft. Um, so our technology arm built two things. Um, the first was the uh, the Internet of Things, where you could put in a little microchip into objects, um, and that object would then become a smart object. Uh, and mm-hmm. it would know exactly what it is. So you could put it into a, a bracelet, for example, uh, and someone could s- upload pictures. And what would happen is that you would um, put your bracelet to your phone and it would show you the pictures they'd uploaded. So you could wow. give it as a birthday present, things like that. That same technology, though, we then utilized to do uh, a strategy um, that I did come up with, um, with my tech director uh, and art director at the time, uh, which was called um, BOPA. Uh, And it's something that I sold into Phil Spencer and to Phil Harrison. Uh, And BOPA stands for Buy Once, Play Anywhere. And basically what our tech allowed you to do was that it carried your save data over to multiple different devices via the cloud, allowing you to play a game on any device. Um, Ah. And this is where Minecraft um, moved. Uh, And so Minecraft was the first game to adopt this piece of tech that we'd built. Uh, And so Minecraft was able to play on the phone. Then you could carry it over to your your Switch, onto your PlayStation, onto your your, your, um, Xbox. My vision for this was I wanted to bring um, games together together. Obviously, Sony would never uh, do go for it, and Microsoft didn't want it. But that was my ultimate vision for both, though, is that buy once, play anywhere, is you buy a game and you play it on any platform. Um, 
Ever we the knew visionary. that was going to be, yeah, we knew it was going to be an impossible sell. Uh, and it was an impossible sell because these companies sell hardware um, and, and games. There's no way they're going to share a single common platform. But that's where um, Play Anywhere, and I think they've called it Buy Once, Play Anywhere now, but it would Play Anywhere on Xbox um, came and, and uses that, that uh, technology. And I think they may have changed now, but at one point you could dig into the code and you would see that it was called a lift token. Uh, that was the thing that bridged between games. And we, you know, obviously being the lift studio, we had that. Um, and so that was the bit of technology that we developed. Um, and, and the, the augmented reality stuff started to um, wane because it was now becoming more business focused than game focused. We still did demos and tech to help push things forward. Um, and then we had games and we actually produced two games. Um, the first games was, um, I think it was called cities of treasure or secrets of treasure. I can't remember what it was. I have to, I have to look it up again. I've got it on my iPad and essentially it was a, a mobile phone ipad pc game where you have a ball you shoot it up and it's like pachinko um yes. really 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 good really popular it was like the top selling game on the microsoft store the only problem was is that we weren't allowed to develop for ipads uh, even though when you came into our studio it was just full of ipads everywhere uh, <laughs> and iphones um microsoft didn't want us doing it yet on that they wanted it on their devices so it meant we had a very small audience and then we were creating a stunning game, which I ended up buying off of Microsoft, um, called Eden Falls, mm. um, which was um, a battle um, builder, um, kind of like Clash of Clans, but 150,000 times better. Um, yeah. The characters were Simpson-esque characters, and it was based in a, a zombie apocalypse, um, but you were actually building back uh, humanity and using zombies as a slave labor um so you know the eden falls comes from that um you know it is eden that you're building but it falls down because you're still using slave labor uh, oh to, to very clever yeah but, yeah. They, but they didn't buy into this concept did they not at this time and i don't know what was going on behind the scenes but a lot pretty much the european operation in xbox got shut down um i think the only studio that survived as a game studio was rare um you know lionhead was closed down we had a couple of other studios in europe closed down because of how we diversified at lyft we could actually move into a different different business uh, department so we moved from that gaming xbox division into the windows division um and it's at that point i said goodbye to to microsoft uh, because did that, I'm, I'm did that sort of sour your experience there you'd come in full of passion and 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 may i say you know sleepless the night before before you walk in there with all these ideas and and passion and things you're going to change and you had all this collected experience and and this was your sort of big moment to realize your dream of being a, a studio director and you were given the chance and then that kind of prematurely and Microsoft have a habit of doing this. They kind of overreach themselves as studio acquisitions and, and currently they're on the, the rise again. And, and hopefully history doesn't repeat itself. But, and, and then they kind of freak out or they don't get the traction on the games exclusives that they're working on. Um, and the rug gets pulled. How did that, from as a creative person that did that hurt um yeah i think it hurt quite a few people um we didn't take it personally though i mean it's it's the 
they're big corporations um and you know at that time and probably still today you know the xbox division barely makes it onto the balance sheet when you compare it next to the products that microsoft put out of course um and you know it was disappointing um it was disappointing that there was a, a lack of investment in those European studios. Um, you know, I still find it amazing that, um, you know, Lionhead was closed down, uh, an absolute talent in the, uh, um, gaming industry there. Yeah. Um, so, um, it, it was certainly was disappointing, but at the same time, it wasn't taken personally at all. Um, you know, you understand if if on the surface what the reasons could be you know they'll never tell you exactly why it's it's usually down to um financial sheets at that point you know can we afford to do this uh, where do we invest um but there was a lot of great experiences that came out from it great team members that i'm still in contact with nice. um and you know we um we made an attempt myself and the art director who'd come with me from sony to microsoft to to keep that game alive for the people that had developed it and um we spent a long time doing a deal with microsoft to buy the game off them i think it's the first game they've ever sold um and so um yeah we again same as when leaving sony some disappointment with leaving microsoft but excited that we were now going to set up a new studio to to create um and carry on this game that the, the team had worked on so um i was i was going to leap straight to um talking about bafta there but do you want to sort of tell us a little bit more about this almost startup experience was that was that scary because obviously for the first time in your gaming career it was all on you. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, and you can, anyone that started up their own business knows this. It was a roller coaster. Every single day was a roller coaster. Um, I set out a strategy for investment um, where we would go to Japan, China, uh, and Korea, um, made a couple of visits over there. Uh, and the idea was to talk to these big companies that would want a foothold in Europe and the States mm-hmm. uh, and and sold ourselves really as that studio. But that studio with a product that had had Microsoft investment behind it and was ready to be uh, built out. Um, it was it was a long, hard road, but we got investment. Um, it was for tens of millions. Um, and we were going through the contract, spending a lot of money on lawyers. Uh, I realized how expensive lawyers can be at this point. Um, and we got all the way to the point where we were um, sending back our our changes and um, our investor pulled out. Unfortunately, they'd released a game that just didn't do well and they didn't have the confidence that they could uh, expand. Um, and that all but killed our hopes because we'd gone down this road of this is how we want our business to run. Um, we did develop another game off of that we decided to build a little um uh like uh idle tap game for a mobile phone but do it kind of in old school uk style graphics um yeah. and uh that got to number one in holland uh which was good and uh it did it did it did pretty good we built it in seven weeks uh wow. three of us uh, and put it out um we then did a vr experience which to this day it's just a demo but to this day still gets thousands of people playing it really? uh, which was called what's uh, the name icarus, of that icarus 76 um and um 
you know, we're pretty sure there's a couple of games that have uh, been inspired by it. But essentially, you're in a spacecraft, then everything goes black and shaking, and you can see sparks flying everywhere. Uh, then you crash, um, and you're inside this pod. Um, you open this door, and you're out on like this Mars-like planet, and you wow. get to kind of hop around and explore. But as you explore, you start to come across like switches and runes um and it's a, a planet that is supposed to be uninhabited but is really inhabited uh, and so essentially it's a, a story puzzle game where the story continues as you kind of solve these puzzles um, that's cool yeah so that did really well in the end we did manage to to pass the company off to an it company who were interested in us um we signed our names off of the company and that company still exists today um so it it wasn't a complete failure and um we went off and got jobs at other companies well in between then and now obviously you've uh as if your career wasn't successful enough you became a member of bafta mm-hmm. uh, and i do believe you were directly involved in choosing 2016's game of the year which from my reckoning is probably uncharted for you've also a man who's won multiple baftas how did it feel to be a recipient and also the giver of such recognition in the industry? And and obviously to a worldwide audience, Naughty Dog obviously being based in America, what does a BAFTA mean to games developers across the world? So a BAFTA is pretty much an Oscar. Um, it's the UK Oscars. Um, and so... For games developers, it would be as if Oscars decided that they were also going to have a video games category. Yes. Um, and and that's exactly what BAFTA have done. They have a video games category um, and they have a separate awards night and they, they celebrate um, not only the, the British games industry, but the games industry globally um, for its achievements. So winning a BAFTA is, um, is, is, is a great feeling. Um, it's absolutely a team effort. There's, I don't think there's any BAFTAs that have been run by individuals except for the honorary ones for, uh, Hey, this person spent uh, a lifetime in the games industry. Here's your honorary BAFTA. Um, so it's, it's fantastic because it's a team achievement. It always is with those, uh, and it's to be, you know, to be recognized by the industry and your peers is, is great. Um, I, th- I don't think there is an audience participation one. I think it is all um, industry professionals um, voting on um, your games. And there's there's thousands of them. So essentially, it's acknowledgement from your peers. Again, much like the Oscars, uh, where they're being acknowledged um, by the, their industry and their peers for, for their accomplishments. Wonderful. And what's it feel? Is there pressure on you for choosing this game? Is it like, oh God, I feel terrible because everyone's tried. As we talked before, no one sets out to make a bad game when you're sat and the decision is yours. Is it? Do you well, feel there's, some... there's, it's an interesting thing because how BAFTAs are structured is you have direct um, voting where they get groups of people together and they decide on which game they would like to go forward. Uh, and then you have um, members voting. So members voting is where everyone who's a BAFTA member votes on um, the game and the category uh, that they like. Um, and you're given the games um, usually via Steam or codes and you play them and then you you put together your uh, view of, of what um, 
you think should go forward. That builds a subcategory that goes off to then uh, a set of judges uh, that then judge on that subcategory. Uh, and so I've been a, a, a judge on that subcategory and obviously every year I'm a member, so I get to vote on that. So in some ways it's awesome. I've found some hidden gems where I'm just like, I had no idea this game ever existed and it's absolutely wow. stunning, uh, but it's in the same category as The Last of Us 2. Um, and I will always vote for, um, I always vote for a game that I truly believe deserves to win. And there's been some that are minnows uh, in, in the sea of AAA games that I, I truly believe should have won, um, but they, they don't even get a look in. Um, which is unfortunate. Um, but I think just to be um, in that group uh, and have professionals uh, and peers play play your games, you know, anyone that goes into the BAFTA should feel proud that they've um, they've accomplished something that they've got, they can actually hand to other people. Well, uh, I feel that much like an Oscar, a nominate, you know, winning is, is an amazing accolade. Having a nomination is, you know, worth almost as much, you know, a BAFTA nominated game, a BAFTA nominated film. It means that you've been included in that very small pantheon because there's loads of games come out. Only a certain few get to be nominated for said prize. And then only one of those wins a prize, but to be in that catch bowl of being even in the same ecosystem as those games. And like you say, there are some very small games in comparison to the AAA blockbusters that to them a BAFTA nomination must be unbelievable. You know, from the outset, they never thought they'd be in that mix. And then to be in the mix with, you know, these AAA games we've talked about there is, 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 is fantastic. And the fact that you're still involved in this and your mindset towards it, I find fascinating. I wish, I wish we could obviously with every single subsection we've been to, I wish we could deep dive even deeper, but you know, yeah. with the mindset that an eight hour podcast might stretch everyone's, uh, endurance a little bit, but we we there's no rest for the wicked here. As your involvement in some of Bobby's favourite things in gaming trophies, and and then <laughs> for honour as production director, such an interesting concept. Hmm. How? I mean, I might want to wheel over to Bobby because he's most eloquent in the for honour universe. But where did that such a novel idea? Where did that come from? So I. Um, joined the team um, as, a, and as, as an external team. So basically, um, Ubisoft have two external teams that they work with. Um, and I really wanted to work for Ubisoft, but I didn't want to go over to Canada. My wife didn't go over to, want to go over to Canada. So she, um, uh, that was a no-no for, for us. But my friends who work in Ubisoft said, uh, this is a studio we're looking at partnering with. Why don't you go and join them? Um, so I went over, applied, uh, got the job as the production director, and then helped them seal the deal on For Honor. Uh, and we came in um, to build certain aspects of For Honor. Um, and this is that Ubisoft have huge teams. Like the uh, Assassin's Creed team is nearly 2,000 people um, all over the world. Um, and Ferrano was something like 600 people. Um, so it's massive. So what you're doing is you, you get given a part of the game to work on. Um, and we were working on uh, basically the, the live service part of the game, um, which is the, the, the um, you know, the meat of, of, of Ferrano. There's a single player uh, campaign that was made by Vancouver. 
uh, and the team in Montreal who are the originators of, of um, Ferrona, they didn't have much of a say in the, the single player campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they were a little bit upset about that because they weren't, weren't too happy with it. Um, but it was all about the online gameplay. Um, and, you know, we went over, spent a lot of time with those guys. We're all good friends. They come over and, and spoke to us and, and we became a part of, of Ubisoft um, working on Ferrona. Um, and what they've achieved is stunning because we have a game where swords can grind against each other, um, which technically is one of the hardest things you could ever do. Um, and so we were given to aspect of the game. We took on um, some multiplayer environments. Um, we did the advanced tutorial um, because there were people needing, uh, you need more, it's a complex game. It's really hard to master. Uh, and so we had to build this um, um, new uh, tutorial system and we built the arcade mode, uh, game mode on there. Um, now I try and remember all the environments we built, um, but we built... Um, there's a, a fortress, a keep, um, that you have to go in. There's a treetops, um, um, mission, um, uh, environment as well. Um, oh, what else did we build? We built another two as well. We built four, four in total. Um, and we worked on other bits and pieces. Um, but the team, um, it was the first new IP Ubisoft had built in a very, very long time. Um, and we went through with the teams uh, as one team, um, as uh, through a lot because you know it didn't do too well after its initial launch. Uh, we started losing players, um, but the team had a huge amount of tenacity. They're very passionate about the game, wanted to turn it around, knew they had something special on it. Um, their engagement with the community is unparalleled, mm-hmm. um, and um, so you know we sat down um, and we were part of these meetings where we were talking about actually taking out essentially the engine. Uh, Stefan, who's the producer who runs the project, you know, talks about it as changing the racing car engine as it's going around the circuit. Uh, And that's what we were doing. We were changing from peer to peer to dedicated servers. Um, One of the most ambitious things I've ever seen undertaking in in gaming at the same time, providing seasonal content improvements, um, updates to move sets, balancing, um, an unbelievable achievement. So it was fantastic working on that game. Um, so grateful to, to get to work on something like that. Um, I think it's, it's a challenging game to make because it's so hard, um, and it's so skill orientated. Uh, if you get someone at the same skill level as you, it's very, very fun. Um, if you get someone that is a, um, a novice against someone that's average, that average person will make you look stupid with, yeah. with the, the skills, but it's, it's mm-hmm. stunning to see these fights. It's, it's like, it really is like ballet with swords watching some of these, uh, players, uh, with, with it. Um, but yeah, it was a huge amount of fun. The team were great. I, I actually managed to win a statue, which I left at the studio. Um, uh, I forgot what the name of the main enemy was, what her name was. Apollyon. Yeah, Apollyon, yeah. I got one of the limited edition statues. Uh, and what they did in the studios, they ran across all the global studios uh, in Ubisoft, a competition where you had to promote um, uh, For Honor in a unique way. Uh, and I made a uh, 16-bit 
8 uh, v- v- version of For Honor with the cartridge, Mega Drive cartridge, and if it was released on the Mega Drive, and I created it, and the manual. Well, we've uh, seen this in one of your videos. Yeah. So uh, I put that up, and I, I won the Apollyon statue. I think there was like five or ten or something that they made That's so awesome. I yeah and then um when i when i left the studio i left that with the studio as well um i also we had we used to every wednesday i sat this thing called let's play where we would fight um and it was so that we could understand how our, our levels were developing but also give feedback um and they did this across all the different studios that were working on for honor um and i set up a tournament and I spent the weekend and I got an old Xbox one that was broken. I bought Excalibur sword. I smashed it through it and then did all this stuff with like bits flying off of it and everything. And that was the trophy. And it's huge about this big and it's still in, it's still in their studio now. Uh, and it was our for honor trophy, um, with a huge sword going through the Xbox. Um, and we played off for that. And two of our players and our team were, I think like top 10 in the world at one point, uh, they were just unbeatable. And so um, whenever I, I got my peacekeeper and managed to beat them, it was, it was like, Oh yes, I've beat someone that's, that's top wow. 10. But, that's yeah. awesome. So I think my takeaway from that is you're either the King Arthur or the Merlin of For Honor, and you cleaved Excalibur <laughs> clean into the stone that is the dead Xbox 360 and either you or someone who next Gotta pulls pull that out. sword out is the King of For yes. Honor, the Let's true that. king. That's awesome. I remember <laughs> getting all my friends when they came out to get it, that we could play together. I got like about 15 people and only three of us stood on it because it was just too complicated for them. In the beginning, it's like, okay, up, down, left, right. You attack, defend, whatever. But then once you get to the certain skill level, it's like you're just, you're decimating three or four people at a time Yeah, if you're that good. And they couldn't grasp it, so they started dropping off. But it was me, my stepfather, and my best friend Marlon. We yep. played hours. We all got the platinum for that game. Yeah, There's so many yeah. memories of that game from all, from all this time playing. It's just been amazing. Yeah, it's like it's even if like, for me, like okay, I play all the time, but when I get wrecked, I don't get upset. I'm like, man, this guy's playing way more than I did. Clearly, yeah, I just got murdered in six moves. Yeah, it's 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 so satisfying though when you get that skill level and you're parrying attacks because mm-hmm. you're making hundreds of a second uh, decisions here. Um, so yeah, it, it is a fantastic game. And I think, uh, you know, it's a, a real technical marvel that it, at least in the games industry, people look at and, you know, it's just like amazing that the team took on such a challenge to build a game where literally swords grind against axes, yeah. uh, accurately. It, it's amazing. That, um, to keep some... I mean, it's a shame, obviously, that's where we have to leave your AAA gaming career and hopefully um, in some time in the future, if you will be so kind as we can have you back on to sort of talk about the where, what, when, where, how of the now. But for now, that's that's kind of sadly where we've got to leave that. Uh, again, I'm I'm sure given the time, we could deep dive for honour. We could do a whole episode about that, yeah. where your patience threshold starts and ends. But uh, if that glittering career... Uh, is is almost enough to set people's jaws on the floor. You've decided to, with your spare time, and and God knows how you find any, because you're a father, and you're you're a husband, and you seem to have a, a very happy life there. You've got your games room, and, and you've 
you've if t- you've taken the time to collect a full Powell Mega Drive set, as we hinted at at the top of the show, and then to catalogue and show off your amazing collection, and to really uh, be so kind as to share some of your um, anecdotes and stories, you have a burgeoning YouTube channel. Now that's Retro Gamer Boy. You wonderful talents in full flow, sir. In every video, when I see your sort of hand come down. And I've only recently been sort of introduced to your content, and you say Kanichiwa, your 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 passion, quite honestly, for this industry is palpable, and uh, that's what draws people in. Fascinating uh, efforts on the intro. You're also part of um, Retro Refresh with the equally talented and the amazing um, Nerd Lair, Tally Splash Gaming, the Button Bashers. Do you nerd? Uh, gaming off the grid who I kind of knew about before but I didn't realize you were part of this click as I want to call it Sega head uh and the chronic Spartan obviously every week um yourself and Sega head who I've been introduced to through the medium of your content you do your your weekly uh, let's plays at the top of the show you alluded to the Batman arcade which you just like a knife in a corner field, you just sway through it as if it was nothing, sir, if I may be so bold. Your talent as a gamer on show as well at that moment. Um, I mean, we've got some questions here which probably are going to be um, skillful enough to sort of help us explore that. But uh, again, I, I your talent on show there, very impressive. The show and the content and the way it's structured very well put together your passion even about repairing i mean i might be a a soft target here because i like to color in video game boxes to make them look like new as well but like i say i could watch you do that for hours um first question out the box it's a 16-bit prick again obviously he's an aspiring youtuber himself he says i love that channel i'd love to ask how you managed to get a decent fan base i notice on his videos that his subscriber rate matches his views unlike mine where the views always outweigh the amount of subscribers i have i'd also like to know what his thought process is before making a video and if he's always happy with the outcome also, if possible, could he give us any tips on the process of actually uploading the video? What kind of tags does he use, i.e. single words or phrases? There's a lot to pick out there. Um, people very blown away by your whole career at this point. And then you've just sort of, as a side project, I'll just be awesome at YouTube at the same time. Um, what? <laughs> where do we start? Uh, what about matching your subscribers to your views? Is there any tips there that you can give for the 16-bit brick? Um, <laughs> that name's brilliant. Yes. Um, uh, it's, do you know what? It was, um, it was the toughest thing to, to, to build up the YouTube channel. Uh, and there's a lot of things that I lent back in, in my career to help me do it. Um, it was very slow to start you know i started off and i had 13 subscribers for months um and then i didn't break a thousand until 2019 uh end of 2019 beginning of 2020 is when i got a thousand subscribers wow and you know everyone that does a youtube channel will know this who who's passionate about the channel is you know you look at that one person joining a month and you're like oh why is it not more why is it not more um and you're looking at the views um and i think there's you know i i've i've looked everywhere for secret source <laughs> like tell me how to do this and give me uh, give me loads of subscribers and i think you know some people find it instantly 
uh, and get millions and and some people don't I am one that doesn't and I'm I'm on the on the grind um what I would say is that um through just sticking with it um you know I put out one a week um I don't do more there's people that do say you have to do more I don't think you need to I just do one mm-hmm. um I do make it my hobby so that I don't feel like it's a job so it's all about retro gaming and the things that interest me um what's happened is is over time I've built up a catalog of videos that people can go back to and look at um and and that that can bring them in if they're interested um one thing i have done is over time improved things um uh, you know i got to a point where i was confident and then i got a light um i still use my mobile phone i have one light and, and, and my mobile phone um i have a lapel mic on because i realized audio is important to people yeah i've noticed um, that yeah and then i i i started um just covering things that I was passionate about and that I think some people would find interesting uh, and hope that that people would find industry interesting. Um, in terms of secret sauce, I found that tags do nothing. Uh, if you're looking Agreed. for direct things, tags do nothing. What does uh, count towards it is description and what you say in the first 20 seconds. So if you're talking about the Genesis, if you say Genesis, because YouTube transcribe your text, it also becomes something they search for. So they search for that at the beginning. So if you say um, the 10 best Genesis games, um, the, it reads that as search data and it will, it will put that in the search data. Then in the description, if you have that as your first lines as well, those are the first two things from a search point of view that it, it, it's, it's pushing out. Um, and then obviously the icons are your sales pitch. Um, and you know, this is where that clickbait term comes from, but essentially clickbait is marketing. All marketing is clickbait. Otherwise, you know, if you were to do the drab truth of what you were selling or promoting, uh, we'd all have gray dull icons, um, uh, because you know, to the majority of YouTubers, uh, people watching YouTube, they're not interested in your content, but that, that icon is important. So the things that helped me was I've got a graphic and art background, um, and I really enjoy that. So I utilize that. Um, I have it my experience. Sh- it, it shows because the, you know, the banner and the channel and the thumbnails and, and your intro, um, perfection personified, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm glad that we managed to sort of, uh, get you on now because I'd imagine sort of it's snowballing from here and not because of our influence, obviously just because of the, the momentum that you've got and the, the content as more people find you, I think they will, you know, instantly want to click subscribe and then one would imagine if they want to dive a little bit deeper into your what i would say quite healthy and fun and burgeoning uh, community as well that that one pound a week easy given mike yeah. easy given um another question previous guest of ours they've got a youtube channel fantastic videos again equal to you in their um efforts and and knowledge and um connections in the film industry um who is it, Bobby? Harvey Retro, the immortal Duke himself. Yes. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say congratulations on a great YouTube channel. Your your presenting is very pro. You have a great you have great energy, and the production quality is very high. I love it. Um, as a YouTuber creator myself, I wondered if you had any top tips on growing a channel community. As I'm finally confident in the brand I've developed with Igmatic Productions and quality I'm delivering. 
Uh, I would just love to, I would just, I would just would love more people to, if I would love more people to see it and enjoy it, looking forward to hearing the show. So we've, we've probably kind of covered those off, haven't we there? But, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a man that, uh, I implore you to check out if you've got any passion for eighties horror and schlock, um, they do a series called the trash tapes and, and they've got I love it. like a series of sections. They do a podcast, they, they do live streams and stuff. And, you know, again, you know, a very humble man there is his content is top tier. So I think he's just waiting for the big drop. You know, I think once you get found within your niche, mm-hmm. it, it's only a matter of time. Um, so yeah, yeah it, it is, it is, it can be deflating sometimes. Um, I think for me, and it's going to be different for everyone. You know, I have this channel because I want to be part of a community of people that like the same things I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I live somewhere, uh, where there's no one that's really interested in retro gaming where I am, or I've not found anyone. And, uh, the triple a games industry, there are, you probably count on your one hand, how many people are interested in, um, uh, old video games uh um, weird that's kind of sad it, isn't it it's it's so bizarre you would have thought there'd be lots of them you know and there's a, people that have a passion for it but would never go and collect or or actively engage um as much as 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 um as i do so for me my channel was never about how big it could be it scares me that it's getting bigger um because i like engaging with people um yeah. and everything i do for it is is about being part of that community. So, you know, uh, you mentioned that membership thing there. Uh, I wanted to give it away for free, um, but YouTube don't let you. But the reason why I did it is it, it's almost got that trophy thing to it where as you go, and this Very is how, cool. I've, how I've structured it, is that if you look at it, you get different colored medals as you go, th- if you stay longer on the Retro Gamer Boy channel, uh, pretty much like the trophy system. Um, and I've actually now been looking at doing like collector's coins, uh, doing like a, a retro collector coin that, um, once people get to a year, they get that. Um, my wife's had a heart attack cause it costs way more than you get, <laughs> than, this, than the actual subscription, uh, to the channel costs. Um, but again, it, for me, it, it would be just like, you know, these are friends or people that I've met and made as friends. And I want to you want to give them something as, as you know, if we were just living down the street, they'd probably give me well, their I, old game. What I would say to you is that, uh, I w I was all in anyway. Then you started discussing this coin and I was like, right, where's the bank card? <laughs> it was simple. <laughs> if I can have a, a Mike Rouse coin, I am stoked. Uh, like I say, I'm, I'm going to work on getting the full Mike Rouse set. So I've got to pick up some, <laughs> this is footballs and, uh, some other games that we, we're not touching on today, but uh, I'm not far away. So yeah, and and I didn't realise that Diggs Nightcrawler, and now I need obviously which I've got, but now I need Walking with Dinosaurs because you your hand has touched it. So yeah, and then they need a spare <laughs> Wonderbook as well. So yeah, the, the, it doesn't stop, does it? The the eclectic <laughs> mix of uh, things that I've collected, it just never stops. Um, I think the obviously as we always say, we can't always have everybody's question on, and and obviously sometimes people ask the same question. So we've read every question and I'm sure Mike's glanced across every question that's been on the Instagram and the Twitter and all that sort of stuff. And obviously it's been discussions in the discord channel as well. Um, not everything makes it on, but we have read everything and we value everybody who's put time into asking some questions. There's probably just some quick fire ones really just to run through Rose space monk says, looking forward to hearing from Mike on the show as a developer, what's your proudest achievement? 
And as a retro games collector, what is your most prized possession? Um, I think my proudest moment in games is the trophy system. Uh, so many people love that. Um, <laughs> you know, I know the guy who has the largest trophy collection in the world, uh, you know, and he, he messaged me back and just said, Hey, you've given me a life I couldn't have dreamed of. Um, which was amazing to hear, uh, most prized possession. Oh, I've got so much stuff. Um, oh, can I have two? You can have it. Listen, you're Sir Mike Rouse of the Unofficial uh, Controller yeah. Podcast. <laughs> And you're one of the co-hosts for this episode, so you can you can you can have five if you want. I'll 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 I'll, I'll keep it to two. So um, I think definitely my signed copy of Zelda from Miyamoto. I met him for a second time when he came to London for the only time. Wow! Um, and he signed my copy. I queued up. I think it was like fifteenth in the queue. Uh, so he signed the original Zelda for me. Did he uh, recognise awesome. you? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Unbelievable, Miyamoto. I know. So two legends but... in, in, in sort of very close area. You'd think the world would implode on itself, but he, <laughs> maybe that's why he didn't ignite. He was like, oh my God, something, you know, I'll just sign this, let him go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely that. And then I love my, um, Mark one mega drive, mega CD 32 X, um, the tower you know, of power, sir. Yes. I mean, there's tons of other stuff in here, which I would put on the list, but, um, I love that, that console, uh, a lot of nostalgia. It was the first CD player I ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, um, obviously the, the mega drive was, I think it sold slightly more copies than the, the SNES over here in the UK. So it was, um, you know, a, a real, are you an Xbox PlayStation fan? It was, it was a real competition in, in the UK for those two consoles. Um, but yeah, I love love that. A lot of uh, good memories with that console. And then the thirty two, even the thirty two X. There's some games on there that I absolutely loved. And uh, having having that console in my collection is awesome. Nice. Okay. Uh, a similar vein, Bobaloba. Bobaloba doesn't just do comments. Bobaloba does the finest comments podcasts can buy. I'll start by welcoming Mike to the finest podcast community money can buy. You have an impressive collection of retro games. If you had to get rid of all but one, which would you keep? And when can I expect to receive the rest? <laughs> oh, that's such an unfair question. <laughs> um, I can't, I don't, I generally, I'm looking around, you can't see me, uh, but I am looking around uh, the small collection that I've brought with me of in, course. The, in the box um and um you know i don't know i don't think i could pick one and i'm definitely not giving them all away um i don't know a lot of pressure this question would yeah, it, it's would too it, much would it be the tower of power uh the aforementioned to be honest i'm i'm having a bit of a meltdown here uh i don't think i'm able to cope with the thought process um I've definitely lost control of my legs now <laughs> as, I, as I try to figure out what this is. I, I think, to be fair, keeping you in the small box that you were transited from the UK to New York in in very close uh, proximity to what you've referred to as cheese. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably starting to have an effect. Last mm-hmm. couple of questions then before we let you out the box. Comic Picture 79 says, from the point of view of a person who makes games, do you think 
all games should be on all systems wherever possible. I think he's alluding to sort of locked exclusives on certain uh, consoles and gaming platforms, PC, Xbox, PlayStation, etc. What's your viewpoint on that? that? That's the dream for me. Um, I doubt it will ever happen. Um, there are laws in this world that would stop that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't have a monopoly on certain industries. Um, so I don't think we'll ever get that. Um, but I would love to just be able to turn on a console and there's my game collection. Um, equally, uh, as someone that's collecting consoles um, and, and games, I love the fact that there is a lot of different games and consoles around. Um, the thing that that scares me and excites me in equal proportions is that I'm pretty sure we're coming to the end of physical media and consoles. Agreed. Um, it is quite possible, at least for Microsoft and for Sony, that this is the last physical hardware cycle they see. Um, Nintendo has a different business model. They're more like a toy manufacturer um, than than um, the others that are selling services. Um, so, you know, um, in some ways, yes, I'd love to see it all on one platform. In others, I love that there's different platforms out there. It keeps the industry alive. It keeps um, uh, people on their toes to push forward, push better. Um, we would have never have got the most expensive Blu-ray player you could buy shipped in a PlayStation 3 at the price it was if it wasn't for the competition of Microsoft and Nintendo on Sony. Um, we would not have got a blue uh, a, a DVD drive that could play movies, the most expensive DVD drive that you could get in a PlayStation 2 if we didn't have competition from uh, Nintendo and Sega. We wouldn't have got online if uh, Dreamcast hadn't pushed first for that. Yeah. You know, there's these these things help actually make the industry um, and the games that we get better. Um, so I see there, there's, there's, there's the, ad, an ideal where we can just put something on and there's a game and it plays. Um, and I think, but the reality is, is, given us such a great industry um you know this this competition um the game of wars uh, console wars um uh, they've actually been fantastic for us as gamers um they've meant yeah. that you know it's pushed people to to um make better and um even more impressive experiences that we can lose ourselves in that's uh that's an interesting um little mind uh, journey you've sent me on because obviously mm-hmm. in in times of war you know we in, in times of peace we kind of move along quite sedentary and then we hit a time of war and technological innovation goes through the roof you know the the most obvious uh sign of that was world war ii so you know keeping the industry competitive and at loggerheads in your way is kind of these exclusives or one-off exclusives or uh, services that are mapped to one system through the years as you say maybe it's blast processing maybe it's you know mode seven or whatever it is we're kind of developed out of necessity and still continue to be developed out of necessity to get that edge in the marketplace where every dollar and cent counts yeah yeah definitely wonderful um well, here's to that continuing. And I, like you, lament the death of physical media, although maybe my house rafters will breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> as, uh, like, so there's no more plastic coming out. 
that's okay. And relax. Last question, Retro Gamer Thomas is so excited. I think he's messaging more times than uh, my own mum. He says, uh, so pleased you've got Mike on, a great guy, and I could listen to him all day with his gaming knowledge and insight into the industry. I'd like to ask what he would say is the thing he's most proud of working on. I think we've kind of, we've, we've been there, but if you could maybe give us one last alliance, this is the last dip in the bag for your, this is your life special. Uh, and he's proud of, uh, and game he's proud of or system he got to work on plus. And again, we'll find some more time for this, but everyone check out his YouTube is fantastic and very professional for clapping in exalted praise emojis. <laughs> well, like I said, I think trophies is, is the thing I'm most proud of. If I had to think of a game, um, I'm really proud of the game that um, uh, my team's just put out, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, it's it's I can't go too much into it because I'm under different NDAs. But uh, yeah, no, we wouldn't want you to. It's it's, it's an open world city game, um, and you know I've got fond memories looking back at at um, doing games like uh, The Getaway uh, and um, PlayStation Home. Um, they've all been different, and I think that's that's a blessing. You know, some people get stuck on. Um, a first person shooter for their entire careers. Um, I've done a football game. I've done an open world driving game. Uh, I've done a, a karaoke game. I've done a social service. Um, I've done a mobile game. I've done a VR game. Um, and, you know, you get to meet a lot of different people in that by doing that. And I think, you know, I'm so blessed and humble to, to be able to um, work with these talented people and get to, to make those games. Um, and then what was his other question? That was favorite favorite game. Uh, two seconds, because I've I've prepared for the arrival of the immortal Stingray. I I kind of uh, you clicked away. I did. I'm a very naughty boy, really. Uh, retro game and Thomas would probably set his mum on me. Um, no, I think that's it. Oh, what's the system you're most proud of having worked on? Oh, that's a good one. Um. I think I don't know. I quite liked working on the the Vita. So again, we didn't cover this much, but um, I had a very very small part to play with the Vita, uh, in that I helped um, test and feedback on it. Um, in the early days of Vita, wow. they would they would get PlayStation Three games and then just hook the screen uh, and the 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 actual device up to a PS3. So you were controlling it through the Vita. Yeah. Uh, and that was so that we could get the controls right on the Vita. Um, so really, really happy to be part of that. Um, also happy to be part of the PS4 uh, at the same sort of time. And they got all the directors from different studios together to give feedback on what they wanted. Um, I just have to make it clear. I asked for backwards compatibility and I was smacked down for it. And I really? said, we should have it. And they said, why? And I said, because gamers love playing their old games. And there's, a, but yeah, they, they didn't go with backwards compatibility on the PS4, but uh, that was something I wanted. Um, uh, and, you know, something I was really hoping for from the PS5, you know, is I would like them to turn up and say, anything with a PlayStation logo on will play on this machine. Uh, Do you think you know, that's obviously, I, I admire that idea. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've heard different arguments for backwards compatibility. I think when push Sony have been able to pull some stats that say it's a great idea, but here's some stats that say, although people say they want it almost to the point of like threatening death, the actual amount of people percentage wise that use it, it is minimal. 
now it's it's going to be very minimal um but it's again you know we talked about earlier that that fan service that microsoft does so well um it costs a lot you've got to re-qa these games or build an emulation system that means that you don't have issues with them some games will have problems because they had online connectivity other games will have problems because they used a certain controller um but um i just i just love and i think it's more of for me it's it would be the last hurrah from sony with, with one console plays our back catalogue of physical games uh, before they move on to to all digital. Well, with that in mind, if they are about to move to an all digital, and obviously with the the anniversaries that have come and are willing going to come, it would be a nice celebration. I just don't be. know. I don't know how you can slow a Blu-ray speed down to read a, a black label CD PlayStation One game and a, a blue playstation 2 cd-rom and and that will work and then equally so i mean they're getting playstation 4 working because i mean i don't pretend to know the full ins and outs but it's not too dissimilar to the playstation 5 but the playstation 3 would almost be like taking it and turning it into arabic and then asking it to sort of balance on a ball while doing it you know it's uh playstation 3 was a very and and seemingly purposely obtuse system to develop for because it would uh, build this sort of um, wall of PlayStation around it where it was hard to port to other systems, but also it, you know, they didn't want people making games for They thought they would be the lead system. And therefore, when Xbox 360 came out the gates and was easy to develop for, it totally caught them by surprise. Yeah. Um, all those sub processes that you, that handle different aspects of the game make it very hard to, to emulate for. You would almost need to sort of partition it down and say okay your cell one to five over there like oh, yeah right, okay let me um okay let me get my head around that for a moment and by that point in time the game's probably slowed down to i mean it might give me a chance to be good at games because it's two fps but you know <laughs> <laughs> playing in slow-mo mode like some quality unofficial controller mike i think that draws a line hopefully we would love to have you back to talk about life the universe and everything again it's been an absolute uh joy and let me hand you the red book with the gold writing on it. Um, if only El Buccio provided me enough money to eat, I probably wouldn't have wasted the budget on food. I would probably have made you this red book, but um, sadly it's, it's not worked out that way. But at some point in time, we'd like to do that. We've extended you a knighthood. Now, the one uh, thing that most guests are most excited about when they come on the show is meeting and it again proves that me and Bobby aren't absolutely insane and have been locked in a room with a lid off the glue for too long. Stingray. Now, in preparation for you coming on board, he's been out because he's a little bit of a, a man of iniquity. He's uh, been out rather naughtily, so I'd avoid these if I were you, building repros of the games that he thinks that you don't have. Uh, in the hope of passing them off as genuine. I see Castlevania Bloodlines or the new generation in the back, you know, that's what I saw on Tuesday. God knows what else he's got in there. Um, with that said, he tears down fifth and main. It's time for a peek in what we affectionately call Stingray's boot. What's nestled between some counterfeit nappies and a dodgy copy of Battlefront all this week? These are the new release highlights for the week, March 1st to March 7th, 2021. Listeners, these are out on digital or physical or will be by the time this podcast in your feed, but could be. Bear that in mind, gentlemen and gentle ladies, they could be region-dependent. Now, the smoke has settled, the dust has cleared, the springs have finished moving, quite how he's managed to get a car 
all the way up to the top floor of a penthouse overlooking Central Park? I do not know, but we don't question it because he appears almost like smoke from one of the air conditioning grates in front of us. Now, I see him as a man with denim, looking a little bit like Paul Calf, sucking on a dirty Lambert. I don't know what Bobby sees. He's probably smoking the bandit. Um, how, how does he make himself visually known to you? How does your visual cortex perceive Stingray? Well, it, it's the most peculiar thing because he looks like my grandfather, but his lower half is smeared in honey and sprinkled with hundreds of thousands. It's the bizarrest thing. That's why you were knighted. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Wow. Okay. I've... I wish I could see that because I think I'd nibble on your grandfather's lower half, which kind of makes me a little bit concerned. Um, With that said, let's keep ourselves composed. (laughs) Let's keep ourselves composed. You you know the format, so there's a mummy mummy to pick from there. Um, I think you've probably settled on something. Bobby's got a mummy mummy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reach into the back of what I see to be a Nissan Bluebird, C-plate, you know, a little old, a little bit of rust. Um, and it's got those little finger I'm trapped stickers you used to get from back in the eighties. I'm going to pull out harvest moon, one world on the switch, March 2nd, begin your new life with a whole world to explore. Maybe manage a growing, growing a farm while exploring a world of adventure, diverse cultures and friendships in harvest moon, one world on the switch. Um, interesting. What's next? Do you want to, is there one for you there, Mike? Uh, I'm quite interested, mainly because of the title, in uh, Sir Lovelot. Okay. Yeah, available on the PS, PC, PS5, PS4, Xbox, Switch. It's on everything. It must be good. Uh, Sir Lovelot is on a quest to find the love of his life. Join him in this wacky, tight platformer where unimpressing, cheeky damsels is harder than a heart to the st- than a heart of stone. Sir Love Lovelot will do that to you. Yes, I'm excited by that. Uh, Bobby, what's next? Mine or down? Uh, Next one down. Okay, we got Maquette for PC, PS5, PS4. It's free, actually, for PlayStation. Uh, It's a first-person, March 2nd. Uh, Maquette is a first-person puzzle game that takes you into a world where every building, plant, and object are simultaneously tiny. And st- staggeringly huge. So it's a free game if you have uh, PS Plus. Is a there's a there's a there's a Deep South video game if ever I saw one. Monster Jam, Steel Titans <laughs> two on a PC, a PS4, Xbox One, Stitch, and the greatest console I've ever played on a stadium. March second, more trucks, new worlds, Monster Jam, Steel Titans 2, Monster Jam, Steel Titans 2 features more fan favorite trucks in a brand new Monster Jam worlds. They love putting Monster Jam in recursive times. I remember, I don't know what episode it was where Monster Jam, Steel Titans 1 launched. We've put a shift in, Mike, I tell you. Uh, <laughs> next is my mummy, mummy. Uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon, PS5, March 2nd, become Ichiban Kusaga, a low-ranking Yakuza grunt left on the brink of death by the man he trusted most. Take up your legendary bat and get ready to crack some underworld skulls in dynamic RPG combat set against the backdrop of modern-day Japan. Bobby, I think you've got... Quality, I'm glad you've got this. Gnosa? Yeah, oh yeah. If I said it right, it's on Switch, March 4th. The Gnosa lie. Pretending to be human, they'll get close 
tick and deceive, and then eliminate one victim at a time. The crew of a drifting spaceship facing off against a mysterious and deadly threat known as the Gnosa, and having no idea who among them, the enemy, formulate a desperate plan for survival. The most suspicious among them will be put into a cold sleep one by one in an effort to rid the ship of Gnosa. So basically, the thing. <laughs> basically, <laughs> yes. Uh, Mike, do you want to have a little dip in? Yeah. What's out next? Uh, so this is a dev team that was struggling for a name. Kill it with fire. <laughs> uh, PS4, Xbox, uh, Switch on March the 1st. Uh, Kill It With Fire, a first-person action game about hunting spiders and causing collateral damage, supposedly with fire. Oh, yeah. This is my mommy mummy. Oh, okay. Uh, Mortal Shell Enhanced Edition for the PS5 and uh, Series X, March 4th. Mortal Shell is a deep action RPG that tests your sanity and resilience in a shattered world. Your adversaries spare no mercy with surviving, demanding superior awareness, precision, and and instincts. I almost have something else there. Uh, Possesses lost lost warriors, track down hidden sanctums of the devout, and face formidable foes. Mm, Okay. Uh, next out the boot ranch simulator PC March 4th build a farmer hunter trader ranching certainly isn't your average job think you have the skills to turn your family's rundown homestead into the most prosperous ranch in the valley then it's time to head out into the wilderness in this captivating single multiplayer open world simulator uh, last one out the boot it's your honour Sir Mike Rouse thank um, you very much uh, and it messes with my dyslexia because I'm looking at it and going is it Ant on Ball or Antona Ball uh, we have the same issues, Mike. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to well, go. What I would with... say is, as, as a knight of the realm of the Unofficial Controller podcast, you could just change that name completely, whatever you want yeah, it to fantastic. be. Fantastic. I, I think a, a better name for it would be if they did Ant on Ball Deluxe. Okay. <laughs> Ant on Ball Deluxe, March 5th, this breakout title from Summit Sphere. Ant on Board Deluxe is a retro high-octane smorgasbord of ball-busting arcade action. Ant on Board Deluxe quite literally turns the breakout genre on its head, blending traditional brick-breaking gameplay with tight, intense platforming. Sounds exciting. Okay. Before he's allowed to leave, we have a VHS pick. Now, mine, I think unless I picked it out before, I don't think I have, is Dick Tracy, the Warren BT Madonna vehicle. I'm having that. So thank you, Stingray, for that. It's it's a dodgy looking cam copy from the 90s. You know, it survived this long. I'll take it. Uh, So Mike Rouse, what do you have? Um, I'm picking up the copy of Dark Crystal. Uh, Unfortunately, the end has been spliced with the middle of Fight Club. uh, So I'll (laughs) never know how it ended. (sighs) I don't know. To be honest, you very quickly got into the vein of the whole show, sir. It's absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. That I knew knighting you was not wasted. Um, Bobby, what's your VHS pick? Uh, Barbarella. Not Queen of the Galaxy, just the original Barbarella. Okay. Well, with that, the boot slammed. Some would say we don't hear the noise of him leaving because we're too cheapskate to actually get one. Um but some some would argue that he just evaporates into almost like a mist and we inhale him. I don't know what goes on. Um, one way or the other, 
He's no longer around. This is why people question whether he even exists. Those that paid attention at the start of the show, they heard me ask you what you've been playing. So, Odders, you can relax your grip on your bag of swag and your jar of jelly deals, friend, because it's time to ask these gentlemen what they're hoping to play for this gaming week. Uh, Mike, so Mike Rouse, you, you so must Mike go Rouse. first. Yeah. I would love to get um, some time playing Alien Soldier on the Sega Mega Drive. Um, it's like a boss rush game, uh, super intense, um, visually stunning for the Sega Mega Drive. Um, I'd love to be able to get into that. And I've been dreaming about, weirdly enough, GT Club on the PlayStation 3 from Konami. Um, I just, happy memories of going to the arcade and playing that. Um, so I might play that. Hmm. And um, also, I purchased but never played Sleeping Dogs on the PS3. Oh, that's beautiful. Ooh. So, uh, I, and it's a game that I've looked at all the time. I'm just like, I want it. I want, I want to play it. I want to play it. Uh, so I think I'm going to sit down and lock myself um, in the remainder of this cheese-covered box <laughs> and uh, play some uh, Sleeping Dogs. Well, well, don't get too comfortable because we're going to awesome. slap a return label on that and put it straight oh, back on the speedboat it came on. But, you know. Oh, God. Can we yeah. drop the cheese out then? Because that's going to be rancid by the time I get back. Uh, it, it, it's not cheese. And I think oh. uh, El Bucho <laughs> would insist that it was left here. It's part of his import <laughs> strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, we can move guests quite easily through this speedboat network, but one would imagine the contraband has to stay yeah. in, in the. Okay. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately. That, that's. Uh, that's a that's an eclectic mix if ever I heard one, but one that befits your. Is there a little? Can you give us a sneak peek of what you might be playing on your live stream this week? Uh, no, because I haven't decided. Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. You know yeah. how to build suspense. Top tips for the people <laughs> wondering how to build a YouTube channel. Suspense is key. Uh, yes. Bobby, what's your uh, games you're hoping to play, good squire? Uh, just Sniper Three, finish that up, and then uh, Cyberpunk, and and knock that out. Okay. Well, Pretty much I'm, it. I'm probably going to be hoping to rebuild from the ground up a PSP to make my mint one there that I wanted. I've always wanted a black mint PSP, uh, sorry, to go with my PS3. Uh, I had a white one, and then you know, if you can't make, if you can't buy one, build one. You know, it's what I expect. It's got to be right. Uh, and then before we leave, I just wanted to say, uh, my stepfather, basically, he started. He really got into Vinnie Jones. For some odd reason, I'm not sure how he became a fan of him, but he used to watch Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels like all day, every day. And then he watched Snatch. And then he actually picked up to buy me The Getaway because he felt like it was like a Guy Ritchie video game. So he watched me play it. Didn't really understand it, but he started playing Black for video games. So really, The Getaway is what got him into playing the PS2, wow. but he couldn't understand how to play that. So he played something easier, but without the getaway or without, without Vinnie Jones, really, who knows what this man would <laughs> ever play video games ever, really. Wow. So it's That's kind amazing. of an interesting, this is I got to the... ask him how he got into Vinnie Jones. So thanks to Vinnie Jones, I got, I got the getaway as a gift. Wow. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you <laughs> and that's and that's really we just want to take a couple of bit of time out obviously retro gamer boy on youtube people can find you there as i implored everybody uh hopefully through the show and hopefully that's resonated with them to 
to click subscribe. It literally costs nothing. If you're thinking about weighing up, which if you're thinking about weighing up whether to subscribe to our show or to Mike's, drop us like a hot stone and get on the Mike Rouse bandwagon, <laughs> please. Uh, you know what's wrong with you people? You obviously have no perception or barometer of quality unless you're uh, the, you're following Sir Mike Rouse, the first knight of the realm of the unofficial controller podcast, and a, an accolade that I think is befitting of the man. Um, another lore for the show. Another bit of lore for the show. <laughs> if we haven't offended you too much or freaked you out with that small fiberglass compartment that we've kind of <laughs> kept you locked in, really, which which has been very, uh, you've been very good about it. Uh, a lot of people would have kicked off and screamed to be let out, but you've been such a good egg. You've got involved with the lore of the show. I think a very humble man, and I hope through the medium of our This Is Life experience that you've you can get some appreciation for how the outside world looks in um, to your career and literally is blown away by it. You, you know, you, you've touched every cornerstone of the industry as we know it. And I think that you should be, I mean, I think you are, but just to, to reaffirm that you should be suitably proud and uh, a man of your status, you're a very, very humble man. And, and having you on has been an absolute joyous absolute joyous experience so if people want to check out your back catalogue of games we implore them to do that i mean at the moment some of those games are abound you know so they can get on board that bandwagon some of your newer titles that we can't talk about right now and we'd love to be again afforded the honor to have you on to talk about where you are in your life right now maybe pick up the red book and write a new chapter in it yeah um, i love that i would uh thank you again Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Mike. On. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, super do. Um, with all that said and done, unless um, is there anything else that you want to do to uh, further direct people to anything specifically that you're doing at the moment? Or No, but um, it'd be great if you could drill a couple more holes in the lid. It's a bit tough breathing on the way over. I... We'll do it. I'll do it for you, no problem. Fantastic. I think we hang up. I really appreciate that. I mean, there's there's no contraband on the out journey, so I guess we can get away with like smells and stuff. So yeah, that okay. Yeah, you got it. I got you. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm going to poke in a a tin of mushy peas and one of those really cheap can openers through the slot to see you got something to keep your mortal form sustained on the return journey. Again, you you've been very humble. I, I need to just tell everyone to find you social media find your uh, your click as we called it with the gaming off the grid and sega head and all those wonderful people and, and to and to double down on the content that's been created button bashes for example um i watched a video where you quite funly uh opened up as a geordie which uh <laughs> i guess you're even better accents than me so at this moment in time i'm just basking in your reflected glory really let's let's draw a line under that thank you again sir uh let me do the famous outro or infamous outro. That's all we have time for this week, listeners. As always, thank you for your time. We look forward to the pleasure of speaking to you again next week. Until then, happy gaming. And remember, there's nothing wrong with being given the unofficial controller. It's what you do that counts. See you guys. See you. Bye. Thanks, Mike. 